Hello, welcome to the Art Grime Podcast, coming to you from a bed with a bunch of people in it on Manhattan's Upper East Side. I'm your host, yeah. Marshall Jones. And I'm Tun Miai. Today we had the great privilege of interviewing one of my favorite artists, uh, someone who's meant an incredible amount to me. I, I remember the first time I was exposed to his work at the Art Students League, and I was blown away by his execution and his concepts, and I think he's, for the last 15 years or so, been sort of a guiding voice in my own work as far as integrity and execution and what it, what it means to make really beautiful art. Uh, our guest, Vincent Desiderio. Yeah, and he was like a hero in, at the academy where I went to, and the scale and the epic of his work and the the lectures that he used to give you know like I think a lot of people look up to him and it was it was a really cool experience just to have him here sitting and you know just having a nice conversation he like I say he's a huge force in the art community incredibly respected um I don't know if I've ever heard a bad word said about him in those ways just Sort of, sort of a high watermark in contemporary figurative uh, art right now, um, and he was extremely giving on this episode. There were some really touching moments. He got so into his life, what it means to be an artist, what it means to live an artist's life. There's collateral. There's consequences, pros and cons. Um, and he was extremely generous, so I know you guys will really enjoy this episode as as much as we did creating and it. It will inspire you to just go out there and just crush it because yeah, the energy yeah. that this, this guy brings is it's amazing. Like you, you'll feel it. Yeah, no doubt, for sure. All right, enjoy the episode, guys. Thanks. Peace. Uh, but I, a friend of mine recommended this Russian guy, Russian healer. I'm not at all into this stuff at all in Boston. I said, you know what? I'm going to. I told my wife, I'm going. I probably knew this person. But, uh, I'm from Boston. I knew every other Yefim, Yefim uh, uh, he's an old guy. He actually did stuff with Harvard Medical School because they were trying to figure out why it worked. And I went huh. to this thing. It was this crazy. We all were in this room, and he gave us this really rambling kind of introduction. Then he pulled out the sculpture, and he went around the room and said, do you know who this is? Yeah, to everybody, and one, and I saw it. I said, "That's Rubens." I knew it was Rubens, uh-huh. and uh, a sculpture one, of Rubens. A sculpture of Rubens, right? And it was a little trinket thing. And some guy, some guy who was there for alcoholism, also said, uh, "Is it Captain Morgan?" <laughs> 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 that was hilarious. I said it was Rubens, and he said yes, and they just went on. And then he had us go all go outside, and one by one, we come into his office, and he says, "Close your eyes." And say to yourself, I am drinking. And when you've said it to yourself, raise your hand. So I closed my eyes. I said, I'm drinking. I raised my hand. He went, Psh. That's it. He made I, the noise. He made a noise. And I, this is really weird because I do not believe in... Uh, there's nothing magic about it. You don't it. believe no, in magic? No, I don't. And I have not touched it or had any desire to drink since then. What? I know. Wow. 
It's what? very weird. It's really, really weird. That uh, was the whole treatment, though. Showed you that was Ruben's... the whole treatment, and he only charges like eighty dollars. He's been doing it for so long, and just that's the amount he charges. And he uh, never raises his fee. And he's seen like Billy Joel and all these like Hollywood people. And wow. really, and it worked. It really. Yeah. Why? Why do you think it works? I I've thought about it. I think that. It has to do with distraction. And I think part of his spiel in the beginning and then picking up that, the sculpture of Rubens, you know, is part of a distracting um, um, uh, strategy. And here's like why I think Like a magician sort of like something's happening in one hand while I shows you Rubens. No, it's not, it's not sleight of hand. He makes sure he doesn't say that. He even was going around and he said, do you have a pain? He would go like this. Like to all the people, and then they would say they felt better. And I thought, this is crazy. I, you know, I'll go through with this, but, but it worked. But I think it's about distraction because I really think that addiction is uh, is a compulsive disorder. Uh, that uh-huh. it's a compulsion, and uh-huh. I was putting like two and two together, and I was thinking about when you look at brain scans, you know, because my son had many brain scans, and he had seizures. You see, the the, 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 the your brain fires in a random way, mm-hmm. except when you have a seizure, and when you have a seizure, it becomes regular. Really? Yep, and then it goes, it's, when seizure, stop, seizure stops, it's, it just goes back to random. You'd think the opposite. You'd think the opposite. That's what was really strange. So, and stuttering also is another kind of compulsive uh-huh. uh, disorder. Uh-huh. So I think that if addiction is a compulsive disorder, then uh, it must be that there's some, some relationship between the, the, mind act, the brain activity that gets kind of caught, like in a stutter, when you feel, I have to drink something. actually have a non-addictive personality where like I've you know tried whatever there was to, to try and I you know sometimes probably in very very large quantities uh Misha please cut that because just in case my parents ever you know <laughs> listen to this um but but overall when I wanted to stop it was like eh, I'm just I'm gonna stop as talking to my uncle who um you know who gets addicted to everything. I mean, uh-huh. he is addicted to exercise, alcohol, you know, like, you, um, you know, so, like social Trades life. one thing for the other. Um, he does all of it. He just does it all. He can't get on the exercise. At the same like, time, right? But, but he, he said that actually, like, like um, and, and I think he might be right about this, he says he feels more pleasure doing all of this than basically than I do, and that's why he keeps Yes, doing. yes. I mean, he will, he, um, and, and I think he might be right. I think I will never know how amazing drinking is for him. Like that, uh-huh. for someone who actually really likes it. Like I kind of like, you know. But I have bad I have bad news it. for you, Dina. There's a, a radio lab that says it's the highest functioning of us who feel the most pleasure, who get the most into well, I never played. <laughs> yeah, I never played. <laughs> yeah um, no, I, I don't I don't think it is. There's a movie, uh, a really great movie by Tarkovsky. Do you know Tarkovsky? Sure. Yeah. There's a movie called Mirror. Uh, you ever see that movie? He, he made Stalker and he made Solaris and, and right? oh, Andre yeah, Rublev. Andre Rublev, the right. icon painter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tarkovsky, right? Tarkovsky, yeah. yeah. And he made, uh, in the beginning of Mirror, it's the most beautiful beginning of a movie. You see a Soviet family, um, just like the, uh, the uh, a boy and a girl and the mother and father, and they're sitting in their living room, and the boy goes over and turns the TV on. And the TV goes, and it goes on, and it's in black and white. And it's a, a Russian healer who's uh, uh, curing uh, a young man of stuttering. Okay. And she does the same kinds of stuff, 
And when she's finished, the boy, the young man, actually says something without stuttering. And then the film, then you never see that again. The film begins. So it's like this tiny little thing is the beginning of the film, like a prelude. Mm. And then, you know, then you're left thinking for the rest of the film, you know, what is the nature of stuttering? What is the nature of curing stuttering? What is, you know, what are words? You know, how do we get caught on words? That that movie is so weird. I I, I mean, it's so weird. It's so gorgeous. It is. It's so poetic. So could could this be our prelude? To our interview. We should we should start it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks yeah. for coming. We this is the Arc Rhyme podcast. Today yeah. we are very honored to have the amazing Vincent Desiderio as our guest. So, uh, well, <laughs> hey. Hey. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. No, I'm honored. I, I'm honored to be here. It's it's actually wonderful. I remember vividly the first show I went to of your work years ago at Marlboro on 57th or whatever, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of the small works, and I was blown away. Oh, really? The small little gallery? Yeah. They uh, every now and then I would uh, when I was at Marlboro I would. Uh, at Marlboro, uh, when I don't have uh, ideas for big paintings, I work on small studies, and uh, the, eventually something comes out of them. Uh-huh. But uh, sometimes, you know, they just remain these little, little things that I, I I do. I remember too vividly was one with a man, presumably kind of like a father, sort of on prone on the floor. Right, that's my father fallen. Yeah. That's your father. Okay, that was my father. Yeah, that's your actual father. Yeah, it is. Okay, and and then there was one also of father, child, and sort of one of those overhead projectors. Right, uh, that was a uh, that was a study for a large painting that I did called Allegory of Painting. Okay, and I'm sitting there in the painting with my self like portrait. And Sammy is on my lap. He's my son. Okay. And he's multiply handicapped. Okay. And he's naked, and he's uh, and I'm kissing him, and he's reaching up to my neck, and you can see that he has a tracheostomy and a G tube, and uh, I was thinking when I started the picture, and they always start as one thing, and then they they become something else. But mm-hmm. it was related to how it started. I, I think I was thinking about the um, the first version of. Um, Matthew and the Angel by Caravaggio, the one that was actually blown up in Dresden. Yes, you know, the, the Matthew cycle. The, the the center panel was which was rejected because it was too uh, racy. Yes, I know this, that. This yes. little boy angel, he's entwined in this sort of you know brutish uh, Matthew, and the combination of this man, this sort of manly man, and this beautiful boy. Who, and who's just sort of like very sensually wrapped in him. And I thought, I'm going to do a painting like that. Um, and it's going to be about, you know, what fuels painting. Okay. And the thing about it is that my eyes are closed and his eyes are closed. Uh, so it's not really about vision. Uh, and instead, there's an overhead projector in front of us, which was, I was thinking really in terms of the origin and the terminus of an image. 
so it was the it's projecting behind us these images from a medical textbook of people with uh, hypothyroidism, so their eyes the are really eyes, right, yeah. bulging. Uh, so and so it looks like the people behind us are shocked by what we are doing, and people who have seen that painting thought that it was you know something sick about it and <laughs> not knowing that it was my son mm. um, and, and it, it became that you know it became uh, something about something about painting that involves things that are not seen mm. uh, so, so what I, I guess what fuels I mean it, it's kind of amazing to do this because we just get to invite our favorite painters and ask them <laughs> questions and you know sometimes the questions are relevant enough for them to answer um, what fuels your painting and I'm also assuming that whatever's fueling it is very different than what was fueling it 10 years ago, 20, 30. Um, I, I guess, how, how did you, I, I mean, how did you become an artist is such a kind of silly oh. question, but what, what made you who you are right now? Who You're I an amazing am. painter. Um, no, what made me who I am? Um, well, <laughs> I, I think that actually the way I have to start that is by saying that when I was very little, um, like 12, I became infatuated with uh, Michelangelo and the Renaissance. And so I began reading everything about the Renaissance. And I even painted the uh, creation of man from the Sistine Chapel on a garage ceiling. Okay. Was it good? Well, no, it was pretty good. <laughs> Stick figure out of no. <laughs> it. Was, Is that was, ceiling still it, there? It was okay. I don't know. We sold the house. <laughs> but the... Uh, Part the, the the part of God the Father was really good. I started with Adam, and I was I had sort of trouble with the anatomy, but I did okay. And then by the time I got to God the Father, I realized that if I just drew it without thinking so much, if I just followed my like you know the force was in me, you know, Luke, and I drew, I I could actually make it give it the the grace that it needed, you know, without stopping and actually stuttering on all of the lines. Huh. So um, the point of that is that I was so infatuated with uh, the Renaissance that I learned to draw by copying. I, I began to learn to draw. I'm still learning how to draw, but uh, by copying um, Michelangelo and Leonardo. And but I was 12, 13, 14, like that. Hmm. And um, when I would look at actual things in life, they looked really boring to me. <laughs> They didn't, and I'd look at a body and I'd say, that's not what a body looks like. A body looks like, you know, a Michelangelo figure. So, so just, uh, to, just to get kind of like a better idea of you, because right now I'm imagining this, you know, brilliant 12 year old, you know, painting the Sistine Chapel, which in my, in my mind looks exactly like Michelangelo's. But <laughs> um, what were your other interests at that age? Like, like you know, what, what were you like as a, as a, as a small Vincent? <laughs> well, I, um, I wanted to be an actor yeah. and a filmmaker. That's what, really what, I, what actors did you like? like Gary uh, Cooper? Marlon Brando. Okay. Um, uh, I actually, uh, when I saw, uh, one of the things that really made me want to be an actor was seeing Julius Caesar with oh, Marlon sure. Brando and James Mason and uh, John Gilgood. Uh, it was just amazing. Watching Marlon Brando uh, play Anthony, it was just out of this world. Huh. And then watching him do uh, you know, Street Corner of Desire and On the Waterfront and 
all well, those very technical films. act, very into the craft, like oh. all that method and all that stuff. Right. Watching him with with um, Gil Good and uh, James Mason was very interesting because they were obviously trained in the British school, which was not method acting, mm-hmm. um, which is probably a better way to train. But um, American actors really started act started uh, uh, in- involving themselves with the method. Of uh, with method acting, mm-hmm. the method, and um, the combination. Watching the two, Brando and the the Brits, you know, doing this performance was was amazing. Mm. To see two distinctly different styles of acting, but uh, very moving. Very. So did you you sort of looked up to Brando as like a male figure as well, or? Not really. I mean, I didn't. Uh, I looked up to Michelangelo. <laughs> Michelangelo was a male figure. <laughs> Um, Strong. Compared to him, Brando was kind of wimpy. No, <laughs> yeah, Brando was a wimpy. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. But, but that, Marshall, was it uh, that part in Infinite Jest? Um, was it about Marlon Brando? Where, where um, yeah, where, where, where Jim, like Jim and Condensa's father is going on about um, the funniest scene ever about the oven door and yes, Brando. Yes, okay. Have you ever you know seen what? your mother with an oven yeah, door? Okay, you know what? Uh, <laughs> we should cut that, cut that out because actually. But what um, what was your family life like growing up? Did you have siblings? Yeah, I have four brothers. Oh wow. Um, it was a very intensely intellectual family. My, okay. My older brother is um, just just retired from Johns Hopkins Medical School where he was the head of uh, all basic science uh, investigation. He was a wow. he's a famous um, uh, immunologist and he has is an MD PhD and he worked there. But he and I were very close growing up. Uh-huh. And we just I wanted to do everything that Stephen did. Except Stephen never got a B in his life okay. as a grade. And he was top of his class, first in his class in high school, first in his class in college. He spoke Russian fluently. He speaks Russian fluently. Um and uh, uh, and he played the piano beautifully, and I tried to imitate him in every way. This is a terrible person to grow up with, by the way. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. It, it really it made me feel really stupid sometimes, but at other times, um, it sort of galvanized my thinking uh, in a way that was uh, that I wouldn't have been able to experience without him. He was a you know, we, we were so close. And he went to Haverford College, and I went to Haverford College, you know. And I decided that I was not going to be pre-med uh, mm. very late in the game and decided I'd be an art major and an art history, study art history. After you had already sort of gone into pre-med? No, I had applied to Haverford uh, thinking I was going to be pre-med. Okay. And the summer before I went there, I decided I wanted to be, uh, because I had always been an artist, but I always thought an artist was a second-class intellectual to a certain extent, which I do not believe now at all. Huh. In fact, uh, a lot of my thinking involves the sort of uh, the so- sort of the social history of art that begins with the birth of perspective, and the artists uh, and and the the, the the famous treatise by Alberti, which is really kind of a manifesto for the. Um, for the intellectual value of the artist, mm-hmm. you know. So Vincent, do you remember that conversation with your? I mean, the, like, I mean, does that kind of set the course for the rest of your life? Do you remember, you know, staying up late one night, um, thinking, um, okay, I thought that this is going to be my life, you know, medical school, maybe becoming an immunologist, immunologist, get an MD PhD. Do you remember that moment where you're like, well, actually, you know, um, yes, I felt like, incredibly just, happy. 
for the first time in my life really? because I had been constantly pushing myself to be a kind of person that I wasn't. Huh. But what came naturally to me were certain things. Writing came naturally to me and uh, and painting came naturally to me. Sculpture came naturally to me. And but I did I because it was so it came so easily to me. They, they weren't great, but they it, it came easily to me and I wasn't really obsessed with it. Uh, I figured there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is really not uh, not acceptable. And you know, the friends who would come over to our house were like uh, one, one, one. Uh, every weekend, we were with Bob Berwick and Phil Berwick. Bob Berwick is uh, a co-author with Noam Chomsky. He's at MIT, and he's okay. a genius. Uh, and uh, so the conversations were amazing. Uh, but I always felt kind of left out. Except when I started reading uh, the first book I ever really read, cover to cover, was Resurrection by Tolstoy. Because oh. Stephen Stephen was into Russian literature, so I would copy Stephen. And I read this I book. Read Resurrection, so I mean, I feel like like that's such a weird introduction. To such a heavy book. But yeah, it, it, um, but it really it was like suddenly what happened to me was that I realized that if I I read the life of the artist, the 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 mind of an artist, a visual artist, into any character that I thought was struggling with something. Or, uh, then I understood exactly what they were going through. Mm. And so, it, I, it, in fact, my son Oscar, because I think I was to some extent dyslexic when I was growing up. Uh, now I have no trouble reading at all, but my son Oscar also had trouble with that. And so I said, I'm going to jump on this right away. And so when he was very little, I, I was teaching him very advanced techniques in painting. Mm. And um, I said to him, now whenever you read anything or think of anything, I want you to sort of think of what you understand as an artist and like um, um, and see if that helps you to understand what it is that you're looking at, what questions are being asked in a certain book. He began reading philosophy in college and he's a composer now. Hmm. You know, so he's um, it really worked. It, it was like if the visual arts are a, uh, an avenue for um, you know, the development of the mind and hmm. it's a it's very it's a sad state of affairs that it's being you know, sort of cut back. The study of fine arts uh, and art in high school is being cut back to a large degree. Cut back everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's terrible. So, do you think it was just the act of visualizing for your your son, like just seeing? Yeah. Well, I noticed certain things about him. Like he had a funny uh, problem where he like an auditory problem where people would ask him something, say something to him, and he would give it, get a funny look on his face, and then he would answer just a completely off-the-wall answer. Like he wasn't processing the language. But he could sit, he could stand over a table with, you know, one of these, like, mazes that you have to, like, you know, find. Uh-huh. He would just look at it, and he'd say, I know that. I can do that. And without even making a mistake he would just go right to the end so he had this spatial sense that was amazing Hmm. and when he drew he drew heavy like Richard Serra black in the middle of a page and it was very forceful and when he was playing the piano just banging on our piano he would always it always sounded musical it sounded like there was rhythm to it so he had this sort of innate sense of uh, spatialization or a spatial spatial sense Hmm. And uh, so I, um, I think that all of that really um, develops aspects of the mind that are, um, if it, we could say, figural rather than discursive, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
did you come from a family of, I mean, clearly it was a family of very smart people. Was it also a family of talkers? Like just debaters, you know. Like we talked. I mean, it was an Italian family. So if it came from a Jewish family, it would have been even better. I would have had the best of both worlds because then we would have actually been discussing things in depth. But in an Italian family, it was a creature skull, you know, kind of things. Okay, Dad. Um, so, uh, but it wasn't like this sort of tormenting kind of, uh, you know, debate and. But Stephen and I talked like that, and then David and I, my other brother, talked like that, spoke that way, and then later Johnny and Mark, so all of us began like so blah, blah, blah. all boys, were you competitive with each other? Stephen and I were competitive with each other. Um, my parents kind of, yeah, and, but then by the time we got to David and Johnny and Mark, my parents were a little less uh, enthralled by their children, I thought, you know. So they kind of suffered a bit. But they, um, they did very well. They, they all did very well. Are you uh, the only painter in the family? Yeah, I'm the only painter uh, in the family. What about sports? Did you do any sports? I, I, I love playing just with my brothers. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, baseball especially, tennis. Right. I mean, it's just, just you're also all boys. So I have, yeah, two stepkids who are both boys, and I, I have my own boy, and I guess this next one's going to be a boy too. But what, what, like, I, I grew up with a sister and a bunch of, you know, female cousins, and I'm kind of amazed at just the physicality of, like, this boy. I mean, <laughs> never mind the truck sounds. But, um, no. Um, but, but, you know, um, j just just the constant, like, wrestling and the, the, the fact that they're always, I mean, you, you've got to do something with that energy, right? Yeah, and we did. We, um, you know, we broke each other's teeth by accident. <laughs> we, <coughs> I remember painting, painting, down, <laughs> painting downstairs and, you know, I'm working and I, I, I sense that a shoe is being thrown to some, at someone and I have to duck and then just continue painting. So it was, it was, it was rather nuts, I would say. But, you know, I, I also have four brothers and then I had three sons. And wow. uh, then we um, we decided that we wanted to adopt a little girl from China. So uh, my, la my my fourth child is um, is Lily, and she's Chinese, and she's a girl. Oh, and I great. got to watch a girl develop for the first time. And it's totally wow. different. Wow, <laughs> totally different and miraculous. And my die undying respect for women <laughs> to this day is just like amazing what they. How they develop, how smart she is, and organized. I know all kids, mm -hmm. all girls are not this way, but the the difference between my boys and her was uh, was startling, really. More or just organization, just organization, like. focus. Uh, she now she plays the piano beautifully. She's far out. I used to take lessons, but she's far beyond me I, now. I bet she uh. never makes truck sounds. <laughs> no, but she makes fart sounds. <laughs> You know, I mean, that, that's the good thing about Lily is that I can joke about anything with her. You know, she's, she's ready just, for college then. Yeah, she's, she's getting, she's getting it right. <laughs> the last time we talked was ages ago. How old are your kids now? Well, Sammy, who's uh, multiply handicapped and lives with me, is 31. And Oscar is 26. Ian is 23 now, 22, 23. And... Um, 23, and uh, Lily is 16. Um, and then so my stepkids are 32 and 27, 28. So you have two in the house still? Uh, Sam and Lily goes back and forth between 
um, my house and her mother's house. Okay. She lived very close. We have a very good relationship, uh, Gail right. and I. I met Gail when I was you know, very young, and she was very young, too, in college. She was at Bryn Mawr. But then, you know, having a handicapped kid um, does take its toll on a marriage, and mm -hmm. we tried very hard not to let it happen to us, but it wound up happening to us. And I, sure. um, I fell in love with... Uh, I, I just, I'm not this kind of person at all. I don't, like, students are like, you just don't even... I know some you teachers... Go near, go near them. You don't go near them. You keep everything on the effort. But there was a woman there who was my age, and she had her own children, and we just fell in love. And uh, uh, and that was tw over 20 years ago. And we've kind of been together for that long. I mean, we're married now. And so she's an artist as well. She's an artist as well. Oh, but great. she teaches uh, high school, Roxanne. Oh, okay. That's great. Yeah. I mean, honestly, child and even that's hard in a marriage so I, I, I sometimes feel like I don't know how any marriage goes through having very young children and, and remains intact uh, it, it's it's yeah. difficult uh, definitely but I wouldn't have it any other way I, if I could do it all over again I would have as many kids as I could possibly have really <laughs> oh they're the best really Oh, they, they... I've always been so scared. <laughs> no, no, they are the... Oh, my God, it's really the thing that is the most beautiful. It's like the only thing in life... The only thing that really is not an illusion is love. You know, uh, everything else is, in the kind of Hindu sense, is an illusion. But love, I think, is really... Uh, it, it, it just is always there. And so uh, I, the love I... You know, I just can think about Lily or Ian. I just spoke to Ian before I walked upstairs. He's in uh, Portland, Oregon. And, you know, it just it fills you with such amazing uh, hope, happiness. Wow. You know, it's difficult. And they have you in tears sometimes, but they really are great. And Sammy, especially Sammy, who's handicapped, is, uh, he's like heroic to me. Wow. You know, having the experience of that... Um, really awakens in you or uh, these cisterns of compassion that you don't normally uh, experience in life. And it makes you really understand that life itself is perfect, you know, and that there's no real perfection of person. Life itself is perfect. Speak, yeah. speak to that a little more. I think it's just the fact that we exist and that we survive and that we uh, create things that we, um, especially things that are serve no purpose other than to uh, uh, illuminate us uh, as we make them and then hopefully have a positive effect or a, um, an effect uh, on people as they decide they wish to think about them or talk about them. Mm. Which is really the thing we were talking about, art. And, you know, I uh, recently I've been... Well, I've been teaching for a while this, I, these ideas that I've been developing. In fact, I'm going to actually, I'm putting them together in a book right now um, uh, about technical narrativity, I call it. Okay. And um, really, the way I was thinking about it was that in the conjuring mind of the painter, there are these three things always happening. The first is, one is considering the, the dramatic narrative of the painting. That is like the subject of what's what is recognizable in the picture, and that could be an abstract painting as well. Okay. But it's the it's in all painting. It's the sort of what's happening dramatically on the surface of the painting. 
And then as you're doing developing this, you're imagining the effect that it's going to have when it's released in the world. First, what effect is it having on you? And what effect will it have on the real world? So all through the process of doing the painting, you're sort of mod modifying your, your, your idea until it starts to resonate in ways that are not necessarily uh, in sync with the sense of the dramatic narrative. So that is really the, the, the story inside of painting that is the technical narrative. That's the development of the paint uh, over a course of time, including all of the failures and the corrections and the reworkings and every decision you make at any turn in the picture uh, becomes a kind of ghost. Uh, it's been described as ghost information inside of the picture. Or like layers of strata in a way that you could see. Strata, but not that are, they're not perceivable. They're per you can perceive them. You can glean them when you see the painting. Because when you see a painting that has a, a, a real depth of... Uh, of uh, signification, you know, and you don't know why it's really having that quality, but it has to do with the, uh, I think, with the um, uh, the course of its execution and the eventual terminus, and that in, in the terminus, the there's something still apparent about how it had developed, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so those three things are, would be the dramatic narrative, the technical narrative, and then narrativity, which is the effect that it has when you release the thing into the world. Oh, how it gets perceived in the world? Right, because you can, you can create something that uh, ostensibly appears to be one thing when it actually is completely a, another thing. Like a painting is never a pipe. <laughs> you know, this is not a pipe. Like a Dylan song, like someone could hear something totally different in it than someone else. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yes, and the artist actually structures it so that it'll have the slipperiness of meaning. Uh-huh, for sure. So I was reading, uh, and there's a linguistic uh, model for it that is sort of the, the, the uh, sanctum and the paradigm. Uh, paradigm. And uh, what if you look at a sentence, and the sentence has a series of words that are sequentially placed, that makes a kind of sense, and they all relate to each other in... You know the conclusion of the sense of the sentence, uh, but every word also ramifies out from itself and associates with completely different words. Sometimes related to them, sometimes in rhyme, or sometimes just you know uh, any kind of association that can be brought to the thing, and that's called paradigm. So. Um, realism, Norman Bryson describes realism as being heavily weighted toward the uh, uh, symptomat uh, uh, symptomatic, mm. the, the, uh, that what you see is what you get. Right, for right? sure. But, and that element of painting he, he, he would call discursive. You can actually comment and make claims about the things that are seen. But there's always something else going on in painting, which makes it not a pipe. Do you, do you, and, and in your work, do you feel like you push away from that? Sort of? Yes, I do, because uh, that's what realism, um, I mean, that, the description of, I, I don't consider myself a realist at all, you know, because uh, uh, I think that, I, I, I think I strive for a, great, a, a, a kind of poetry, I guess that's the way to say it, a poetic uh, relationship to things in the painting, but not only in the painting, but also to things that have been previously painted. You know, okay. so that the history is whenever we look at a painting and we try to make sense of it, the best way we make sense of it is through other paintings, because paintings always speak to other paintings. Mm -hmm. I don't think they just pop out of nowhere. For sure. Right? 
So it's defensive. Me, me and Marshall were talking before um, before you got here um, because I was nervous and I wanted to figure out what we we're going to ask you. So it turned out that we have the same, you know, the same favorite Vincent Desiderio painting. Yeah, and coincidentally. Because, and because we have this chance, could you please talk? Um, could Marshall can pull Wait, up first, let's see. Could, could you guess what both of our favorite <laughs> paintings? Cocaine. No. Although I love that one. I, I, have access I like to that, that one too, but it's not, uh, but it's not that one. Uh, it is... I have it on the iPad here. Uh, I, I want, yeah, this one right here. Uh, it's one of the most gorgeous paintings I've ever seen by anyone. Oh, <laughs> the it's wheel. It's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, oops, I'm sorry. Like I think that's, it's, uh, it's Norman Bryson. I told him never to call me in this uh, century. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's Ian and uh, a little girl that we knew. Uh, the daughter of a good friend of ours. And so, so for, those, for, for people who are listening... So I'll describe it. It, 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 it. The title of it is Twilight of the Idols, correct? No, that one's called The Wheel. This is called The Wheel. Okay. Right, Twilight of the Idols is a different painting. Oh, it says it under here. Oh, uh, mistake. But it has it has two girls on a couch, one in... A boy and a girl. A boy and a girl. One in sort of a Christ pose on the couch. Right. And then a shadow of a... a looks like a vintage sort of swim bike on the... Yeah, like it's a swim bike uh, <laughs> shadow. Um, and it's gorgeous, and it's poetic, and it's not really sentimental while having feeling, um, and, and it's amazing. Uh, but could you kind of talk about what, what was going through your, your head, or what was, you know, um, I mean, obviously it's your son and a girl that you knew, but um, it's not just, it's obviously not just that. <laughs> right, it's, it's um, basically, it's sort of... Uh, I think a narrative strategy to uh, throw a curveball into the uh, the uh, the thematic text of the picture, you know, or the dramatic narrative, so that you know, um, my my goal is to uh, to create an enigma as clearly as possible, <laughs> you know. Okay. okay. So it sounds uh, almost like a Leonard Cohen song. <laughs> 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 and so, uh, you know, and, uh, this this bicycle wheel shadow was like, you know, always in my mind. Uh, it has to do with, for a while I was obsessed with the uh, abstraction of the oval, you uh, know. Um, thinking of, you know, uh, mannerist work as opposed to renaissance work. That ma The renaissance work would be the circle, but the mannerist work would be the oval in a certain mm. sense. And so... Um, and then it leads me to think about all sorts of other things, like the nature of mannerism and mannerism's relationship to modernism. And um, do you mean like mannerism is just more oblique? Is that what you're saying with circles? Um, yeah, there's a certain like you know tendency to uh, to distort in uh, mannerism. Uh -huh. um, you know, they were they believed that they were actually operating with uh, what they called disegno interno, uh, internal drawing, so that they didn't care that the drawings were were out of whack. Like Pontormo's figures are stretched. Uh, El Greco's figures are totally stretched. Mm -hmm. You know, someone like um, uh, Bronzino, sometimes his paintings, the torso doesn't even match with the legs. Right. You know? And uh, we, for, for a long time, people just imagined that people had, uh, in, the uh, in, that, in, the, in the 16th century, had forgotten how to, how to draw. Which is not the case at all. It just seems uh, different things are important to them. Uh, yeah, you could say it, but it's interesting to note the differences. 
Yeah, because that's where you really understand its relationship to modernism. Now, here's the thing is that in the Renaissance, a notion of uh, organization, uh, of, of architectural you know, geometry that was in total balance was, was in play. That even in, in poetry like uh, by uh, Ariosto, you know, you would have you know love, virtue, and you know heroism, and they would be equally dispersed in the text so that they formed a kind of like Raphaelesque pyramid, you know. Mm. But in a in a poet like Tasso, you would have who's a mannerist poet and wrote Jerusalem Liberato. There's a um, uh, there's a, a sense that the sound of the words themselves, the sonority of the of the text, actually has its own inner meaning that is really not related to the the clear description of the elements in an architectural, you know, uh, uh, geometrically uh, uh, distributed sort of framework. And the thing is that, like Hamlet, for example, is a mannerist character. Not even though it was written during the, what would be the English Renaissance. By the time the Renaissance moved to England, they had already Italy had already experienced mannerism. So Hamlet is a remarkable character. He's a mannerist because he's riddled with doubt. You know, a Renaissance character would have no doubt. But mm-hmm. uh, the protagonist of a Renaissance uh, story would never be a person who, you know, was seeing spirits and, you know, didn't know whether he was mad and could, could so only. Hamlet is a ditherer, and I feel like the Renaissance had no had no place for dithering. Then. Yeah, well, you know, it, it was the thing is that it's also interesting when you know, look at, uh, like. Ruben, uh, not Rubens, look at uh, Ang and Delacroix, for example. Ang did, uh, made illustrate, did a, pa- a famous painting that was a scene from uh, Orlando Furioso by Ariosto. And he also did a painting of Raphael in his studio with his, uh, uh, with his mistress on his lap, you know, with Michelangelo walking in the background, right? <laughs> Delacroix painted Michelangelo in his studio brooding and he painted a picture of Tasso in prison. Mm. And he painted a self-portrait as Hamlet. So there was a, the difference between the sort of rigid organization that like, began with uh, Poussin, probably, and then uh, continued through David, you know, and that sort of neoclassical work. And it's distorted in a sensual way by, by Ang, you know, really called for a kind of balance and organization of, of form, especially. But I feel like with Angry, I mean, so, so, so I actually don't, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, uh, but with, uh, yeah, Poussin and David are, like, they are really rigid, almost to the point of being boring, mm-hmm. but Anger is actually kind of weird and idiosyncratic, and yeah. he, he's not boring at all. No, he... he uh, and then he's not even that tied to reality. He's tied to, I guess at the Academy it was called closed-form painting, which is probably why he's associated with those other guys, but he's a, um, but I feel like he's not, you know, like, like he's so much more kind of imaginative and strange. So. He, he definitely is. It's almost, there's almost a perversion in his, uh, in his sort of, uh, Obsession with Raphael. You know, when he paints eyelids, for example, the Raphael eyelids. If you take uh-huh. a Holbein yeah. drawing and put it well, next Raphael to an Ang drawing. He doesn't even paint that. Yeah, you know, I mean, Raphael wasn't that upset. Like, Raphael was just being Raphael, whereas Anger, I feel like, was, you know, that, probably mispronouncing, even mispronouncing his name. All I was saying, saying, I don't Anger. know. Anger. But he also, he, he, the way he depicted women is so much different than men. It felt like men in Ang's paintings were more fleshed out and a little realer where women felt so idealized idealized almost yeah. like the, the people you would see on money or something with the, yeah. the way they're treated yeah. <laughs> um, um, I can't remember 
remember if this actually comes from a lecture you gave at the academy, you know, 15 years ago when I was there, but that painting, Odalisk, where if you stand her up, she, you know, like, right. you know, she's lying down, if you stand her up, she's so completely disproportional, right. and she would be about nine feet tall. And, That's right. You know, and like, in class I would say something like Michelangelo figure, like if the note of Michelangelo from the, the tomb of... Uh, of Julia, of uh, Lorenzo, the major, you know, if she stood up and came into the classroom, we would run screaming because it would be this <laughs> mo- monster come in. But it has nothing to do with that. It has to do, it initially has to do with, with uh, the relationship of perspective to form and drawing, tonality. So disegno and colore were the two, there was the paradigm during the Renaissance. What's more important, disegno or colore? And of course, Michelangelo and those people were touted disegno and Titian and the colorists were, were about color. But the uh, idea that form was measure, measurable, uh, that form was something that was stable, that it was mathematical, that it re- was related to objects in space, that yeah, pers- right. perspective, it really is what was this intellectual center of painting for centuries. Mm-hmm. That form has to be there, right? right, right. And, but when Delacroix deconstructs the idea of form and privileges color over form, all of a sudden you see what, what Ang, David, Rubens, Velasquez, all of these people, Rembrandt, throughout the whole history, starting with Caravaggio in terms of atmospheric, you know, perspective and, and modeling, you know, form becomes the essential calling part of, of the intellect. And Ang actually says drawing is the probity of art. But Delacroix enacts the most remarkable revolution by overthrowing the authority of form and privileging color. Mm-hmm. And his influence was really demonstrated most uh, significantly with the Impressionists uh, mm-hmm. and the post-Impressionists. So, so Vincent, um, you were actually, um, b- before I, because all of the things that you're kind of touching on are so interesting that I feel like any of them could, you know, t- turn into an entire hour, but you just you just said something and I wanted to ask you about it before we sure. go for, you know, we, we, so you were talking about kind of the confidence and straightforwardness of the Renaissance man versus, um, you know, like like the kind of dithering, you know, the uncertainty and, and the doubt of, of the mannerists, which in a way is maybe to the modern mindset a little bit more interesting, but um, who, who are you? I mean, you, you seem like you're very, like, um, like you seem like, you seem so sure in your painting or, um, or in the way you talk about it. Um, but then there's also a lot of kind of searching and, and exploration. Are, are you a Renaissance man, or are you kind of a self-doubting? Like, like, have you ever had a moment of just uh, not being sure where you're going? Kind I of think I'm... In life, or are you... Uh, yes, always. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, How many times a year does it <laughs> every, every day I have to go to my studio and convince myself that it's worth it. Uh, and, and really, and sometimes I have to like pace around and think and think and think until I finally come around to thinking it it, it is worth it. So Convince yourself that it's worth it. So have, yeah. have you ever have you ever had kind of like a dark night yeah, of the soul, soul where where all the, you know like where all of a sudden you're like okay well maybe I should have become an immunologist I mean not not necessarily should have been that, a, an actor um, instead of um, an but, but um it, I should have been Marlon Brando <laughs> yeah 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 um, but, but was it was there ever a moment in life kind of so that you specifically we <laughs> <laughs> had clams that could have been tender that was a commercial for <laughs> seafood shiny. I could have had clams that could have been tender oh, I remember. <laughs> remember that I do remember that. <laughs> 
felt like maybe maybe this isn't worth it. Like like it like it's something in your art career or your life that happened, and um, and kind of what did you do to get through it? Because you're obviously still Ooh. painting. You're obviously still a really good painter. <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. And you obviously I, still love it, which is the other right. thing. Right. So was there were, was there a moment you doubted the love? I guess. Uh. It's hard to. It's hard to separate that from uh, depression because uh, the first time that I felt, uh, I felt it a couple of times in big, big ways. The first time I felt that was when I, um, I had just won this Crescent Prize at the Pennsylvania Academy and I had traveled to Europe and I came back from my last year of school. At and so how, how old are you at this point? Today? Oh, after college. So I went to art school after college. And uh, I was totally depressed. I, I just couldn't figure out why I was doing this. I, was, I think that what I was looking for was an authentic, uh, something authentic in my mark, and I stopped believing in authenticity. I was actually becoming postmodern. And I didn't know what postmodernism was, but I found out afterwards. And, and that, that made you a little bit depressed because you know postmodern. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was the, you know, in my, my idea of modernism. I mean, sometimes we were, we're sort of schooled in an idea of modernism that there's this sort of like remarkable and highly intellectual evolution of work, and emblematic of that are the trees of Mondrian that become eventually the, the squares. You ever see that series of paintings they did where the tree gets more and more abstracted, or you look at the back by by uh, Matisse yeah. and it's moving toward a certainty and, and there was a there was a tremendous like uh, belief in what they were doing the reduction and all of that stuff and, and you were working abstractly at half in the right? beginning abstractly then I started working a little figuratively uh, and when, when was this depression in that in that that was probably 1983. But but in the in the terms of your uh, abstract oh, to feet, like was I was I was working I was trying to reconcile uh, a kind of expressionist tendency in me with okay. representation, and I couldn't do it. And then I was walking around Philadelphia in that kind of days, and I walked into a bookstore and I picked up a small volume of uh, paintings by Goya, mm. and uh, I saw a crucifixion by Goya. And I've seen it in person. It's really, it wasn't what I thought it was when I saw it reproduced, but the painting had a, bore a resemblance more to Rubens than it did to, uh, to or, or that kind of like form sense, uh, than it did to what I understood Goya to be, like the 3rd of May or the, uh, the black paintings. Right. And so um, all of a sudden I realized that he, he wasn't a natural thing. He forced himself to do it. And later I read that Pacheo, Pacheo uh, uh, Velasquez's father-in-law, said uh, that Velasquez claimed that he wished to be first in crudeness rather than second in finesse. So in the beginning of Velasquez, you see him very, like the one in the Met, a cop trying to look, make a Caravaggesque painting. Mm-hmm. You know, he's in competition with, with, with Raphael and uh, Titian, and it's not him. And he chooses to not paint that way anymore. So when he makes Los Barachos, for example, all of a sudden there's a heaviness to the paint and a crudeness, but it's fantastic. Right. You know? And that, it was a choice not just a natural evolution of sty- stylistic evolution. So you think it was Made a choice really to kind of 
like a, a reckoned choice that you would have sat down and been like, I've got to pursue my own thing, or... So, or by, the, by the way, do you feel like that separation that art schools tend to make, um, I, I mean, almost we, like, the, the you know, the, the, the figurative camp, the conceptual camp, do you think it's kind of damaging to, I mean, to, to people who are trying to become artists because it pigeonholes them into, I mean, I feel like a, like some of what you're describing might just be that, you know, you're both, like, you're, like, like to, you know, you're a figurative artist and you're a conceptual artist, and I feel like like, I feel like art schools almost try to make you choose. Like, like you have to declare your colors. Um, well, I think that part of it is the, uh, the times we live in. I mean, um, first of all, I would say all painting is conceptual to begin with. That the incidence of, uh, of pure mimesis or uh, pure perceptual painting in, in art are few and far between. Paintings are generally inventions. So, I mean, I, I think of mm -hmm. um, uh, Antonio of... Um, Yes, and he is the greatest perceptual painter alive. But he's not... Antonio Lopez? He's totally amazing, um, and um, I could probably stare at any of his work for, I know, uh, way, way too long, but he's not just... I, I mean, he is perceptual, but there's so much kind of love in it and care, and it's not just that he... I don't think talking. it's care or love. I think it's care. I think it's obsessive care, and I think it's terror that makes his paintings uh, what they are. I think that... His uh, he has uh, he's profoundly disturbed I think by his um, by a doubt that he may not actually be standing in front of something actually looking at it and every brushstroke an assertion and a negation it more real. yes it then it, so it's like trying to the, hold on to something there's an there's an existential element in his work a kind of horror of of uh, observation. Uh, and in a certain at a certain point, you almost sense that he doesn't even know if he really is existing. That uh, it's it's a, 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 a so like a, almost a death terror. He's trying to trying to hold on to something for fear of it slipping away. It could be. It could it could be something like that. I guess I, I kind of my interpretation of that was he loves reality. I mean, he's so interested. I, I totally get what you're saying, mm -hmm. um, and I also get how you would want to hold on to life slipping away because, uh, because it goes so fast, and the older we get, the faster it's going. But um, to me, there's also like he, those gourds, like he, he adores those gourds. Uh, like, 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 like there's so much beauty in it. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we call it beauty, like we call the heads, the severed heads of Jericho, <laughs> beautiful as well. But you know, it's beauty for a different reason. I think that he's. Uh, uh, I, I think that uh, there's a, a sort of an allegorization of vision in his painting. That vision itself is allegorized, uh, but it's done with a, a very close, the signifier and the signified are pressed incredibly close together in him. Do you, do you paint out of terror? Yeah. You do? Yeah. Tell me, tell me, tell me about that as a motivator. I always worry if what I'm doing where what I'm doing comes from. I, I don't spend too much time worrying about that, but I always worry if it's worth it. Huh. Uh, and I'm, I, I, I paint to, to rid myself of the uh, incredible doubt that it is not worth it. Is it almost like if you make something kind of tru truly good, you know, good to you, or good out in the universe, you know you know it's worth it? And do you have paintings that you feel that way about? Or like, you, you, you finish it, and you're like, 
Like, I know what I'm doing this. Uh, well, you know, I, 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 um, I generally loathe my own paintings. <laughs> Are you serious? I look at them, I look at and the way I've gotten around that in my, my, psychologically is that painting for me, the act of painting is an act of personal enlightenment. And that when I know the painting, people say, well, when do you, how do you know the painting's finished? Is it, uh, it's finished when I've gotten everything out of uh, it that I possibly can, given the parameters oh, that I set for myself. That's the best answer I've ever heard. Because people all the time will be like, don't put another stroke on it, it's done. And it's like, no, I haven't gotten everything no. out of it yet. And when you know it, and, and you can destroy many paintings that way, but uh-huh. when you do push yourself beyond to that, that place... You experience something that is absolutely uh, unforeseeable uh, outside of the process of doing it. It's like an isthmus. You know, isthmus, this, it's, a, it's know. two bodies of land connected by a very narrow body of land. And when you walk along the isthmus, you know, at any turn you think, this could end, a wave could come and wash me off of this. Maybe I should turn back, but you don't mm. turn back. And huh. when you get to the other side, you see something that is remarkable that you never could have foreseen. And... That is totally a total engagement with the process of painting, which flies in the face of conceptualism. Although, in and of itself, the sort of the modus operandi or the sort of the impetus for actually pursuing that kind of geological sojourn is to uh, geographical sojourn is to uh, uh, is conceptual. But conceptual art is born out of uh, you know a privileging of linguistics. Over, like everything else in the 20th century, privileging of linguistics over uh, and certain, uh, over a, a kind of scientification of language in linguistics, and then in semiology, a scientification of science. Uh, yeah, yeah, like semiotics, like yeah, the like, hero wears the white hat or whatever. Yeah, and then people make use words like you start saying the index of this or the the. Uh, you know, there's the, the register of this, you mm-hmm. know, and it involves like sort of an imaginary, completely false idea that there is a fixed register of gestures and things like that. All of that is completely, you know, language, not language oriented, it's oriented toward a kind of like, a, um, like this obsessive uh, reduction of language to a scientificated agenda. It starts with Saussure and it goes through structuralism and all of that. Um, Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not very visually entertaining. And, entertaining. And, and, yeah, yeah. And, but like, I don't mean entertaining. Like, I don't know. No, I know like, what you mean. It has to be entertaining. It has to be entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it's not entertaining, I mean, what is entertaining? Chelsea most of the time it's it's really not entertaining not in the um, least and, and I um and I used <laughs> it's to crap. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is, it is so crap I felt okay you heard it here um, <laughs> um I mean in case you haven't heard it in Chelsea <laughs> um but I actually used to feel, you know I, I used to have a theory that the reason I'm so irritated by conversation you know I used to go to Chelsea and look at the art and because it was so visually kind of bland I, I would start listening to the conversations and sometimes, sometimes you overhear kind of the most ridiculous shit but I, so, so I used to feel that the reasons that that's happening is because 
you know, modern art is so, yeah, vis vis you know, kind of like visually uninteresting, so uninter you know. Um, Not modern but, art, but no, um, uh, postmodern yeah, yeah, art. Yeah, 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 all right, right postmodern art. Um, I mean, de Kooning is certainly interesting. Yeah, um, yeah but um, so I, I used to think that, that you know, so, so, so people are kind of having these pretentious conversations about pretentious art. And then one of the last times I did that, I was just walking around, and it was a particular, usually there's like one good show that makes the whole, you know, like, like the whole day worth it. Uh -huh. But this, but, but this time there wasn't. Like, like <laughs> not, not a single Happens all one. the time. Like, like all, all those blocks, like, not, not a single thing. And, um, and, and so I was listening for how people reacted, and I kind of realized that they're not actually being pretentious. They want to feel something. They want to look at something. They want to feel meaning. They, you know, they, they want to see something good. And they want to see something that makes them kind of, you know, that makes them think, that makes them feel, and they're not. And so they have to grab onto basically anything and try to spin it into, you know, the like it's a, it's a corner of the sculpture that's entirely made out of, you know, paper clips that are <laughs> magnetized together. You know, the, um, like you know, the neon here that is a little bit like, you know, off off color. Um, is it, they're grabbing onto anything just to create some sort of meaning for for themselves, just you know, because the, um, because the art is not entertaining enough. Um, and then I stopped being irritated at Chelsea conversations and started getting angry and, you know, like, why can't we entertain them? You know, like, like, the, like we're artists. Uh, I, I think, you know, people figure out, try to figure out what's going on and they develop ideas about how to describe what's going on and, and, in, and in the development of the human mind, development of culture and things like that. And those things uh, then get kind of codified and discussed at length by uh, critical theorists, and they become really the uh, the, uh, the uh, emblematic uh, discourse of of our times. And those those kinds of discourses are the ones that teachers in art school, by and large, uh, uh, understand and and like. And so that gets translated, that transferred onto the students. Uh, certain models of, of understanding art, how art functions, and it perpetuates a kind of privileging of text over and, and, visual. And also those are the people who, you know, get the grants and get the, I, I mean, and partially it's because we want people to succeed who are kind of like us. Um, so, I know, I went to undergrad, there was this guy there whose claim to fame was that he uh, made the world's longest brushstroke which was presumably immediately followed by the world's longest streak of paint remover. You know, but, um, How long was it? It was long. It went all the way across Amber's Commons. Uh, and it took ages to clean up. Um, but, um, but, but he, um, I, I, I mean, so he hated anything that looked remotely figurative to the point. And, and he was this very, very loud guy. His name was James Hendricks. If you called him Jimmy, he would have, you know, like, if you like, if, uh, if you called him Jimmy, he um, looked at you in this, like, kind of way, like, you would actually prefer to eat your, you know, esophagus right now, but, um, um, but so, you know, he was one of the people responsible for giving out the scholarships and giving out the grants, mm -hmm. and of course he didn't want to, you know, he wanted to give it to people who saw it like himself, mm -hmm. um, and so the, yeah, so anything different? Uh, anything that, in his case, looked like anything, just kind of automatically got rejected. And I feel like the people who are, you know, event like like the people who are set up for success, mm. are the people who kind of go along with this canon that is being taught at universities. It, not all of them, but a lot. And then there's the ones that get, you know, 
the further grants for for grad school, post grad school. You yeah. know that. Um, but you know, you. I mean, people can people can play the game if they want to play the game. Uh, rather than get like have that be um, central to my 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 soul, my being, that resentment. I don't have it. I don't care. I, they can do whatever they want because we always have the model of Bouguereau and, uh, and Messonnier covered with medals, you know, getting all of the awards and being the highest, the high, reaching the highest heights of the art world in France when the great artists were not them. They were Degas and they were Monet and they were Van Gogh. And, they uh -huh. were, you know, and so we have a, a very clear model of what official art looks like and how it perpetuates itself. So we also then have a model of how to rebel against the unofficial model of, uh, of success. Yeah, I think ever since I was a kid, it always seemed like the interesting stuff was well below the surface of mainstream. Like, it wasn't... It was always like whatever's coming out of, like, CBGBs or whatever, it wasn't Tiffany on the radio. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. In, in, that, that whole mentality, though, has disappeared in the Trump era. I mean, gradually, 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 it disappeared. And what we have are professionalists who have to um, play a certain game. They have to be financially uh, successful. Uh -huh. um, you know, when I was young, we would have an expression that someone sold out. Well, that uh, was big for me, too, for right. sure. But now, selling out. It's like, it hey, man, that's what we do. We sell uh -huh. out, all of us. Yeah, and uh, how that came about is a question. But, but, I, but I don't know. I, I mean, I don't feel like... So, so I actually I brought all, up all of that because, I mean, I, I guess I see Chelsea as kind of the mainstream art culture, at least in New York right now. There are so many good artists um, that, that, you know, and, and a lot of them, I mean... Are there? Yeah, there are, though. Are there? Thanks to differ. I wish this was well, a video podcast so, to yeah. see Vincent's so, face. So, 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 so you actually happen to be, so you happen to be one of the few good ones who, um, you know, other people know about. Well, you could <laughs> say that, but I could never say that. <laughs> and I wouldn't say it because I don't know what I am. I just am trying as hard as I can to... Uh, to uh, engage my brain. You actually have something interesting to say, though, and it comes from, you know, having a, a life that's full of, you know, really high experiences and low, you know, it's a well-rounded life experience. And a lot of people, you know, they say, you know, how do you write a good uh, fiction novel? And it's just having, basically having something interesting to say. And it's a lot of stuff out there right now. They're not saying anything. They might be making something that's well, saying technically good. dangerous. I think that's what Vincent was saying in this era. Like, you don't want to be polarizing. You just want to paint dots, put them up, or whatever. Because it's like, it's dangerous to say things, right? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, I think we can say things respons responsibly. Like, unlike Roseanne Barr, you know, <laughs> who to be, to totally honest, irresponsible. I mean, to be honest, I feel like all of this started way before Trump. I, I feel like it's <clears> the last, you know, like, like, the, like, like, when is the last time we've used the phrase, oh, he sold out? Like, I remember, like, when we were an undergrad, right? Nirvana. Like that, the last time the sold out was a thing was with Nirvana in the early 90s. They blame yeah. MC Hammer for selling yeah. out, but now that's the model that <laughs> every out. rapper uses. So for, for the record, like, we have, like, a real millennial here, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> do, do people still use the word sold out? <laughs> do, do you own my honest answer? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think uh, Trap makes it clear that um, success for underground and non-traditional styles is actually possible and that record executives will follow along but it still has uh, traditional trappings of capitalist superstructures. I totally, totally agree with you. It's like, I totally agree. It's like, you know, you can have your little revolution in your bedroom and listen to this music. Not, not the indie stuff. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about you know, the commercially sort of, you know, work, the commercial work that is actually sort of structured to create a false sense of, uh, of an edgy avant-garde. You know, there's certain, like, there's music like that. There's also art like that. That sort of, you know, it's, it's, what happened was the very people who attended the art history classes with us when we were in college, they were sitting, we were wanting to be artists, and they didn't want to be artists, but they wanted to learn about history. And what they cut their teeth on was the idea that the avant-garde was a revolution, and that if they could control that revolution, even though the revolution was against them primarily, the bourgeois, uh-huh. if they could control that revolution, they could make a fortune and maintain this steady state idea of a ghost allegory of the avant-garde and floated above our heads so we still think there's this avant-garde thing. There is no avant-garde. Look, if it looks like the avant-garde and it smells like the avant-garde, then it's not the avant-garde. <laughs> that's, that's right, yes. But, but here's the thing. I, like, I feel like there, there's so many... There's so, there, are, there are good artists. There are good books and there's good music. Yeah, all, all, very few of them make it kind of, you know, but like, like make it to the surface. Uh, but I feel like there's actually kind of, in, in a way, there's never been a better time to be a painter, while there's never been maybe a worse time to be a painter specifically within kind of like mainstream in, in, in infrastructure. I agree with you. Uh, it's a great time to be a painter because we know now what, where the lines are drawn. There was a time, like maybe late 50s, 60s, from the beginning of postmodernity, when we didn't quite know where the lines were drawn because the art world itself was a very small thing during the abstract expressionist period. By the time we arrived at 59, 60, it became an international market. Uh, it was, and it was, you know, the architects of people like Frank Lloyd from Marlboro. And what happened at that point was that uh, with this international sort of multi-million dollar, now billion dollar industry that is the art world, nobody wants to watch their holdings fall in value. So you have to support your holdings in committees at museums when they have exhibition committees and they have like uh, collections committees. It's like, I think it's time we, we, we did a show of so-and-so. And the curator will say, well, you know, it's a little young to have a show. And, and this guy who's suggesting this has a bunch of the paintings of this guy and other people in the, on the committee say, no, I think we should have the show. And the other people say, yes, we should have the show. And they have the show and immediately their, their work, the work that they own, Rises in value astronomically. Right. Like and, Mona Lisa's and nobody exactly. So it's a great of, film. One of, one yeah, it's a good movie. One of the least, my, my least favorite shows of all time. Um, and if someone here liked it, you can, you know, <laughs> I, I, I can stop. <laughs> uh, Let's hear it. There's a Wade Guyton retrospective at uh, was it the Whitney or is it the um, where is the Wade? I think it was. I mean, I mean, 
Actually, we we died as like the eight was like the age I am right now, which is thirty six, and I feel like a retrospective. Like, what has really happened in your life? Tell me. Yeah, really. Like, well, who is uh, this? Wade Guyton, he, um, he's one of these kind of like art world darlings. He's probably one of the least visually entertaining people that um, I, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've ever seen in my life. And, and there's all of these, I know Roberta Smith wrote a glowing review and then Terry Salt wrote an even more <laughs> So So um, if you want to get really he's, mad, um, wait, mad wait, wait. Is he the guy printing uh, stuff? Yeah. He, he, so, so, so he basically, he would, he, he would get these really, really large printers right Mm -hmm. and he would print out letters very 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 large letters on Mm -hmm. very very large printers like an x or you know mostly x's maybe some o's um and 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 some of the ink would get kind of like so what jerry salt was claiming that was the imperfections of the ink as it kind of blotched in these you know kind of like warhol's lithographs i would say (laughs) (laughs) yes Very astute. <laughs> no, um, Wade Guyton's the first to come up. Um, I mean, I think Warhol's a genius, actually. I, I can consider Warhol. Warhol one of my top artists of the 20th century. I think Warhol's great. Too. I think he's War- great. Warhol, I agree. Warhol, I agree. like, uh, this, this, this Wade Guyton thing was, um, I mean, you, it, like, like, honestly, um, it made me... What, like being in that room for ten minutes. I mean, it was a huge show. Um, being in that show for about ten minutes, uh, kind of like I said, maybe I would have rather been in like a morgue. I, I don't. I don't. Know. I'm, not, I'm not sure. Maybe you were. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, definitely say like like a cemetery would have do, 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 do been preferable. But like Antonio Lopez would have to see if he exists. Like, like yeah. a, like a morgue, Is this real? Am I here? <laughs> Of cadavers would have been. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, Misha should probably cut that. Uh, but, but it, made, it, made, it made you feel really, really, really just horrible on the inside because you're like, is, is this it? Yeah, but like, listen, like, is, is this what we can make? Is it? Like, we've got to be able to do better than this. You're it? being force fed. We're being force fed. <laughs> who wants? Who wants a part? We don't have to eat the shit. But yeah, like, you don't have to eat the shit. Who wants a part of that? That feels like. I mean, if I was. God, if I was Lou Reed and I saw Tiffany singing at a mall and on the radio, I wouldn't want that. This, that feels like the mall version of art. Like, who wants Jerry Salt's talking about the blotches on your thing and people? T- who well, wants well, that? Well, That's I want, boring. I want Jerry Salt's talking about but do, do you I want, want Jerry Salt talking about anything? <laughs> do you do you want any of that in your life? Just like no, that. I mean, imagine this. Imagine Michelangelo. Okay, there's not too. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a modernist. I love modernism, right? And postmodernism in, in certain aspects. But imagine Michelangelo. He's on the scaffolds. He's painting the, the profile of, uh, of one of the Sibyls, right? And he's agonizing over the, the, the line. Uh-huh. He wants it to be just right to turn just perfectly, but not too much. He wants it to be illuminated, but not too much, right? And he's 75 feet above the ground. Uh-huh. He knows somewhere inside of him that from 75 feet below, no one's going to see that profile until the 20th century comes around. People photograph it from this far away from it, right? Right, right. And then he comes off the scaffold, and you know, he's tired, and he, goes, and he, walk, he walks past a bunch of priests and cardinals and the bishops, and they're looking at a painting by Ilse Joma. And they're going, oh, your colors are so beautiful. I love your work. It's so playful. It's so this, it's so that. And Michelangelo's looking at this and thinking, this is pure, unadulterated shit. Uh, 
which Sodoma is. Well, actually, imagine Michelangelo coming off mm. that scaffold and seeing a huge X that has been printed by you know, <laughs> you know, an inkjet printer with like a little little blur on it, and and you know, You'd say thank God for the printing press. <laughs> You'd be like that discoloration in this print um, makes it all worth so, it. So, so, so honestly, every once in a while, I um, um, I, I wonder if. Not if it's worth painting. I, I feel like painting is worth it. But sometimes I wonder if, um, you know, like everything, let's say we could say in this podcast maybe has already been said and everything I could say about contemporary art has definitely already been said. Um, like, like you know, is, is there a point in talking about it? And then I reread that Jerry Salt's Wade Guyton review oh, um, and, I'm like, and I get so angry that I'm like, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. Like someone's, someone's got to say something else. Well, Jerry Salt also wrote at one point that uh, he, he and uh, Roberta don't have children and they, they really don't like children and when they go on when he goes on a plane and he has to sit next to a child he just hates it he wants to change his seat he said that great artists are not parents they should not have he children he said that? Yeah, he wrote, and I wrote to him and There's I said no historical I said this is that. bullshit I mean Rubens had kids Bach had many kids I mean yeah, what are you no. saying about women who want to be honest and also want to be I mean, mothers I mean, or fathers I mean, who want to be fathers I mean, what an asshole I, by the way Jenny Savile right, right now like look at her. I know and her, there's about? three paintings in her show my, you know who are my two favorite artists right now Jenny Savile and uh, Cicely Brown I couldn't agree more I love exquisite their work now Jenny's work I think I put that, Natalie Frank in that camp too mm, no yeah. I, I didn't her. say no she's good <laughs> no, I, I, didn't say, I didn't say no. I'm just saying that the the show of uh, that the, her show now, Jenny's show. There there are so many paintings in that show that look like they want to be something but are not quite it. Not quite it. She can't quite get it. And the you think it's in show, between things. In between, but then those three that you see as soon as you walk in are brilliant paintings. But in between is such a powerful place for an artist and almost back to what you were saying we, we, we dropped it but when you were in school in between sort of renaissance, modernism abstract figuration do you, do you feel like that was a real powerful moment ultimately for you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't show the painting so. You wouldn't? <laughs> Not, no, I don't think I, I would be mortified Really, uh, and I've 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 been so mortified by shows that I've I know I've been to my own shows where I was in the middle of stuff, but I said I, I had these shows. It was like public education. When I had my first show in New York, it got so much attention. Um, it was like a headline in the New York Times and a photograph of my painting and this and that. And when and was this for the? This audience? is eighty seven, I think. Okay, so you were all in figuration at this point. Yeah, but the, the work was crap. Okay. Uh, I thought, and although I knew I was trying to get at something, I was no—I had no chops. I didn't—I I was learning how to paint, so I was learning how to paint in the public eye. Huh. So now wow. some of these paintings are in museums now. That like the Ludwig Museum has a bunch of them in, in Germany, and I, I just like, you know, I don't want those to be what represent me. So at a certain point in my life, I said, I am not letting this leave my studio until I. I'm assured that when I see it in the gallery, I'm, I'm not going to have a freak out. But do you think, I mean, it means something to <coughs> a lot of people. Do you think you're too close to it to, because you're calling it crap, but I'm sure I would have a different interpretation. Like, do you, do you think it's because you're close to those images or do you think objectively they're not to it? I think objectively they're not good. And huh. I think that they're not good because I wasn't trying, but right. I was failing. I was trying and failing. 
But that's and important. Important uh, abstractly, but not important. I mean, I'll tell you a story. And so a, a guy, uh, Whistler, Whistler uh, did a painting that this woman bought, and he hated the painting. And he kept asking her, I want to buy it back, because he wanted to destroy it. But she would not let it go. And so one day he was at, one night evening he was at a party at her house, and he was feigned that he was ill, and uh, said, well, mind if I lie down for a bit? So she put him in her bedroom where he knew the painting was, and uh, she lay down on the bed, and she left, and I'll be all right, I'll be all right, and she left, closed the door. He got up, took the painting off the wall, and threw it out the window. <laughs> Um, Brahms what, burned so many of his stress. What an asshole. <laughs> no, I think it's great. Also, um, here's another story. Monet. A guy bought a Monet, and he came to Giverny, and he tried to... Um, uh, he wanted to get the painting authenticated. So he, he went to Giverny, he saw this column of white smoke. Uh-huh. He walked up there, and, he, and, uh, and there was Monet, and he was burning his paintings. And he said, Master, I, um, I bought this painting a while ago. I was wondering if you could... I'll authenticate it for me. And Monet looked at it and said, yeah, it's mine. He threw it on the fire. And the guy said, what did you do? I paid money for that painting. And he said, go to my studio and pick out a painting that you see there. Oh, uh, okay, all right. You I know what I mean? That. The idea is that you, you have to exert a certain degree of quality control. But I remember in, in my own life a personal story. Someone had bought like a little landscape I did. I was probably like, you know, in my teens. And, and I liked it at the time. I saw it later on, and I was with the guy who had bought it. And he's like, you remember this one? Kind of, what do you think about this? And I hated it. I was devastated by it. I was like, oh, my God. But I remember starting to tell him that I I was like, well, you know, it was a while ago, and I, I paint different now. And then his face kind of sunk, you know? And then that was a big lesson for me because I was like, I don't want to like. No, you don't want to say that. something. You, you to don't want to say that to a collection. <laughs> that's that's Actually, right. One of, one, of, one of my first commissions, um, like like if I could like do something different in life, like I, I could have. <laughs> um, it's it's maybe to take that back and redo it, but um, it was this woman who, and and I was maybe like twenty twenty one when when a commission for something like, I don't know, $600 was like a bit, I mean, that was a big deal. And she gave me things that she were, were sentimental value to her, which involved some sort of Venetian mask and, I don't know, some sort of cloth. And this very, um, was this glass, which I also, you know, I, I heard, or I thought I heard, that she also got it on this kind of sentimental trip to Venice that she took. And I was painting them, and I had them on, you know, like a, like, kind of like a table, and I was painting on a wooden board, and at some point I, um, I don't know, we had this dog at that point that was kind of like <laughs> vaguely incontinent and like needed like, <laughs> needed constant monitoring. So I I think maybe maybe the, the dog was you know like like needed to be what outside you know like like outside and I got up kind of too suddenly and um, you know knocked the you know drawing board into the uh, you know, like I, I, so I, I knocked it into the still life and this glass that I thought she got in her trip you know to, to Venice goes flying into probably about like a thousand pieces and oh my God. Uh, then it turned you know I, I call her and I ask where the glass came from and it turns out that it was not from a trip to Venice it is the only memory that she has of her dead grandfather who oh somehow God. managed to get it 
out of you oh. know the blockade in Leningrad, and it was the only oh possession that he oh had, and that's God. why she wanted to paint it. And I, I, you know, I ended up I was calling these like glass restoration places <laughs> that were like, and, and this is worth how much. I was thinking it to glue together, but it really was like I had all the pieces, oh, and there's probably this is heartbreaking. Like, oh, it, that's it broke. It broke. It was. It broke in a way that only like very fragile St. Petersburg glass from you know the turn of the century oh, could, could no. break. Um, so, so I, so I was like, I'm just gonna like finish this from my head. I mean, like, gotta do something. And it was vaguely sketched in, and and I finished it from my head, and I gave it to the woman. I didn't want any money for it. It's a terrible painting. I think it's like tinged with guilt, and it was something that was meant to be <laughs> painted, painted, painted from life. Painted, painted with not, love, painted with guilt. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like not painted from from life. It was painted from you know like like maybe an hour of life and like 20 hours of trying to figure out what this looked like. Um, that, that's kind of like, yeah, I, I, I can paint faces pretty well and I can paint whatever I want to paint actually, but if I don't want to paint, if I'm really not into it, I can't do it at all. So mm -hmm. portraits, you know, usually commissioned portraits, if someone says, I, I screw them up completely. I just don't know how to paint. I forget how to paint completely when I'm doing it. I remember one time I did this painting of this guy. His father was dead, but he had a couple of photographs. And I, I did a, a painting of his father, his head, and I, I brought brought the canvas into for him to look at. And he said, "There's something, there's something not right." And then he said. It's the head. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all there was, man. I think it's in the head. So, I mean, the art world is such a bizarre place. Uh, and kind of, and it's full of, you know, it's, it's, it's full of strange characters, and it's full of, what's kind of the strangest thing that happened to you? Just, just you know, this is kind of an, like an offbeat question. But I, like, I feel like you must have so many stories. I to do tell. have a, a very strange story. Okay. okay. <laughs> Let us hear. At a certain point when I was started painting representationally as my second show or something like that at uh, Langan O'Hara Gallery back, way back in the day, um, I was, you know, I thought, I, I thought, I should make political work because you know, the idea that you know if the, the work is not really meaningful and also has some kind of social value. I was thinking this way. I don't think that way anymore because I think it does have social value and officiously political work is never effective at all. I think you can t change someone's sensibility and get them to think rather, and then let them come to their own conclusions. But by that description, you're saying like social realism is Yeah, effective? social realism. I, 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 was, I was more in that, in that line thinking okay. to myself. Uh, and I did a painting of Victor Ahara, who was a Chilean folk singer, a communist, who was in prison, who was uh, captured in Chile and was brought to the, the stadium, the, the, um, the uh, soccer stadium where they kept all the prisoners, the communist prisoners. And um, he started uh, playing the guitar and singing these, uh, these lefty songs, and the guards just went up to him and smashed his guitar and then smashed his hands. Mm. And then he stood up with his hands bleeding, and he continued singing wow. until they shot him and killed him. Wow. So I did this painting um, based on um, based on the flaying of Marcellus by Ribera of of uh, Victor Hara getting his hands smashed, mm. um, and on it was a diptych. It was a horrible painting, but on top of it was a um, were these cylinders that were at PS one uh, when I was there because uh, I had a studio at PS one for a couple of years from oh. eighty four to eighty six before yeah. the museum was there. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when it was really a pretty cool place. Okay. <laughs> well, now it's... came and ruined it. It was such a great place. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. But I did this painting, and I made these generators, and the generators had these copper heads on them because Anaconda Copper was one of the American companies that was uh, spearheading the revolution against a legitimately elected government in Chile by uh, uh, um, Allende's government. He was a physician, and he was a, a, a communist, and he uh, was a legitimately elected in America, completely destroyed their economy and because they, they had all this vested interest in the resources of Chile. Anyway, on account of copper. So I had this copper things there, Victor Hargitay's held, and I'm standing in the gallery, and then this man comes in who I knew was a good man, really. I mean, he was, he was good. His wife was good. They had a daughter who suffered greatly and was killed, and he bought some of my paintings early on. He was the, uh, the executive director of PS1, I think, at the time, something like mm. that. And um, they were standing there, and they said, explain this painting to us. And I said, well, that's Victor O'Hara. And I couldn't even get to the point where I mentioned the copper. <laughs> and he said, Anaconda Copper had nothing to do with revolution in Chile, and he walked away. And I went, his wife said, I think I should tell you that uh, Tony was the uh, Undersecretary of State for Lyndon Johnson in charge of Latin American affairs. Wow. That he was one of the Americans who gave the go-ahead. Oh. And I never saw the man again. I never saw them again. Wow. And uh, that was it. That's 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 a pretty cool story. I think. That is crazy. But I, th you know, I think he's no longer with us, and I, um, wow, you know, I just don't want uh, any kind of animosity to be uh, broadcast about him and his wife, which I, I, I really felt for them and mm. their loss. And, uh, and you, you mm -hmm. honestly, you can also like someone, feel for them, and not agree with them uh, exactly. about their political beliefs, which I feel like happens to all of us all, all the time. Right, it happens all the time. That's why overtly, that's why political work is best done when it sort of attempts to change the sensibility of the of people so rather than address straight on so I, political. So I, I, agree. Straight um, on so I, I grew up in a family of debaters, like that's what we do. You know, yeah. we, you know, actually now everyone has kids, so we no longer have conversations. But uh, before that, <laughs> you know, people used to sit around and, and debate things and. Uh, one of, one of the things that my, my father used to say is that you can never actually, in the process of a debate, no one has ever changed anyone's mind in the history of the planet ever. That's like, right. Like what, you, you know, like what you could possibly do is drop a few seeds in their head that, you know, like a few weeks or months or maybe even a year later, they're like, that, you know, would cause them to look at some, you know, incident, piece of news, whatever, whatever it is, piece of information in a different way. Um, but, but, you know, while the debate is happening, I think that's why political work fails. Like, either you're preaching to your own choir. Exactly. Um, or, or, or the people who of, you want to convince will never be convinced. Um, or, um, mm -hmm. They're not going to be convinced by the straightforward saying they're going to be annoyed. Right. Um, I, had this, I had this discussion with Sue Coe. Do you know Sue Coe? Sue Coe is like a very, I mean, uh, she, she came to my undergrad at some point, and mm -hmm. I think just like possibly made everyone cry. I mean, she was such an angry woman. I, I, well, I, I, I really liked 
likes her. She came to PS uh, she, to, she, she, to New she's York really, Academy. She's a really great artist. Yeah, and, and and back in the eighties, you know, I, she was like a hero because I wanted to make political work too, you know. And in the argument we had, it was in front of all the students at the New York Academy doing the crits because she was visiting critic. I told her that I did not think, even though I like her work very much, that uh, it, it was it, that. Political work, I, I explained to her what I thought political work. I think all work is political, and uh, mm-hmm. you, and it has a uh, it associ- there are always associations with the work, and those uh, you can scan the, the associations and come up with some kind of political agenda at some point. Um, and but I think that the best, most effective way to, as I said just a few minutes ago, the most effective way to make a political work is to create. Uh, an aura of sensibility about a particular subject that will inevitably or almost inevitably lead to someone lead someone to reconsider certain things without actually telling them that. Mm-hmm. And once I explained that to her, she said, "Oh, I'm going to have to kill you." Because <laughs> <laughs> then that is just propaganda. She agreed. She agreed with me. She, yeah. I, I, conv- I mean, I didn't convince her to change her work, but she saw my point. Huh? And otherwise, it's just propaganda. Yeah. And. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, I know. It's it's such a dubious prospect to paint something so literally where the viewer doesn't meet it halfway. You know, think this way about that rather than just. Because I think the viewer like we want to meet it. You know, like, like, it's like, the only like, way you can engage with want, an image. Like, we want to finish the story. Like we like we we want you know like we don't actually want it spoon fed to us. Well, like Vincent like was saying, even in technical that technical narrative terms, you don't want everything. You want to you want to even meet that halfway to a degree. Yeah, all through the course of that, you are uh, judging whether or not you are you are being too explicit. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's right. And uh, or you're connoting too much, or you're, you're denoting too much. Uh, there's a cognitive. There's a con- in 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 literary theory or in, in critical theory, they have the two words: they say the discursive or the figural. And the discursive really are the elements in the picture that you can identify and make claims about. They're clearly visible on the surface of the picture. Mm-hmm. The uh, figural it has nothing to do with the figure. It has to do with uh, the sort of what I call, what's called the ghost narrative of the picture, or the technical narrative, something that uh-huh. is gleaned that you can't possibly... Like you figuratively know, speaking in a way. That's right. You can't put a name to it. You can't quantify it. Uh-huh. And it is the essence of what painting is. And it's why semiology fails in its description of paintings because they, it turns paintings into simple signs. And then we're taught to think about things in terms of simple signs, whether it's abstraction or whether it's representation. Mm-hmm. We think in terms of simple signs. And if you think in terms of simple signs, they'll say, well, nobody will understand what you're saying. But you know what? Who really understands the deposition by Pontormo? Do you really understand right. why that guy's skin changed his car you know, at a certain point? Right. I mean, why are those figures floating? And who is this guy with the eyes like that that always appears in and why is eliminating mystery a goal? Just clear understanding of something. It seems insane. Uh, it, right? you, that's why I say I want to paint an enigma clearly. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so Vincent, speaking of yeah, clear, clear enigmas, or um, I guess you, you brought up that Jerry Salt hated hate sitting next to kids on airplanes. Um, uh, I, by the way, um, would prefer probably not to sit next to my own kid on an airplane. But you are kind of like being a parent. You know, being a parent's a big, big part of you. Yeah. Um, you know, like I am one of those women trying to figure out how to, you know, have kids and still make art. So far for me, it's actually been really, really hard. Like, like hard. Um, but how can you, you, does your uh, partner have to 
partner actually help? Uh, uh, I'm not answering that. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, uh, see, that's the that's uh, he listen to this. <laughs> no, no, he's not going to listen to this, but on the off chance he does, I will. <laughs> you know, you wind, up, you wind up doing things that I mean, I have kind of regret. For example, uh, Sammy, my son, first son, uh, had a stroke after surgery when he was three. At the same time he was in the hospital, my wife, Gail, was giving birth to Oscar, second son. So I was going between the floors to, to, oh to my Sam and then Sam, so Sam, Sam. We were living at the hospital, essentially. The oh. day that Oscar was born, uh, I was supposed to hang my, show, my first solo exhibition in Philadelphia. Wow. And I, so what did I do? Much. I said to Gail, Gail, I'm going to hang my show. And I've been kind of haunted by that. that mm -hmm. I, I think that I left this woman after she had just given birth to this baby, and the kid was upstairs. My other son was upstairs, and uh, he was essentially uh, he was paralyzed. It was a horrible condition. Mm -hmm. And uh, what did I do? I went to Philadelphia and hung my show. And then when Sam was supposed to come home to us, I just kept thinking. My, I will not let my life be over as a painter. I've been doing this, I've been working at this for so long, I, I will not let this. And so imagine like t having to take care of Sam 24-7, because he needs 24 hours. So we had to figure out, we figured out ways to have insurance pay for nursing for him until we won this, he, Sam won this lawsuit against the hospital, and now he's financially taking care of Sam is, which is really great. It was a huge settlement. In fact, it was on the cover of the Post. That's how mm. big it was. And there were news trucks parked outside of our house after uh, New York Hospital lost this uh, case. Uh, but Sam is taken care of now for the rest of his life. So things did work out so that uh, I can have I have 24-hour nurses at the house mm -hmm. uh, and uh, all That's sorts great. of stuff for Sam. And, you know, he gets around a little bit. You know, he's, a, he's the best. He's the greatest person in the world. He never complains about us himself never complains about illness even if he's got a double pneumonia he's I'm fine you know he'll go on really? oh he's the best and he all he wants to do is joke around and laugh and uh, oh, we have the, so great we have the best time and he's in his 30s you're saying yeah he's in his 30s now but he's like little 30s because you know when you have neurological problems there's like a failure to thrive to a certain extent mm -hmm. but uh, uh, I didn't let that consume me uh, I said to my wife, you know, we have three options. We can either tread water forever in our state of grief, uh, or we could sink, or we could thrive. And we have to opt to thrive. Hmm. So we immediately, we had Oscar, then we had Ian, and then we adopted Lily. Wow. So we have this house full of kids. I had them when they were growing up. And Sam was always there. And they love Sam, and Sam loves them, and uh, nothing will, st I will say that, nothing will get in my way. Uh, not to be a famous artist, not to be the greatest artist, not to be the most famous, you know, the, the richest artist, anything, but nothing will get in my way of, of uh, pursuing this, uh, this kind of enlightenment that painting brings me. You know, I've had cancer twice, and I had a stroke as well. Uh, I didn't know and, any of that. Yeah, and in fact, my I had my my breast was removed. I had breast cancer. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So no, but I feel great. I feel great, and um, you know, it, 
what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I never, like, especially the breast thing, which happened uh, a few years back. You know, I I just was refused. I painted that picture of Theseus. I don't know if you saw it from my show of all the figures. Mm-hmm. I, I painted that while I was just waiting for the surgery, and I just I was saying to myself, nothing is going to stop me. Yeah, I like. I'm glad I did that painting. Then I'm glad I did the two abstract versions of it. But uh, so, do you think, as it, it sounds like you keep coming back to this idea that the more you work on your art, the more it works on you, and the, like the, it's sort of like your levels are. It's enlightening. It, it helps me think. It helps. It's, it's, it helps me think. Things occur to me when I'm painting that would never have occurred to me outside of painting. Like the, the way a painter's mind works. The way a painter verifies that something exists in a previous work is by celebrating it in their own work somehow. There's no textual evidence that proves that, yeah, say, Manet, uh, Manet did to uh, space what, uh, what Delacroix did to color or to form. But uh, I, in thinking, in painting, I, I, I spend my time thinking about why Manet did the three versions of the execution of Maximilian, why the last version of the execution of Maximilian has a strange emblematic quality to it, and why in that, there's a, there's a wall in that painting with Goya-esque figures above it, and then there's a wall of the backs of soldiers that we can't see through to the execution. So whereas Goya would have, you know, romantically played up you know the horror of this execution mm-hmm. Manet goes through first one is romantic he abandons it second one is more optical like Velasquez and he abandons that and the third one is is really ugly and bizarre like he cut the figures out and decoupaged them onto the canvas and uh, that's the one he finished and exhibited and I always wondered, you know, for years I thought about what was going on. And Michael Fried actually says in his description of the painting that he wishes that the Goya-esque figures weren't there in the painting because they threw off his theory of the picture. But for me, what it is is that space for perspective is not only sort of an illusion of space, but it's also a kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's time itself. It's space and time together. So when Alberti says we paint an historia inside of the, uh, the the perspectival grid, you know, we paint this, it's a history that you're painting. And that, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. perspective is time as well. So when people make history paintings, what they're saying essentially is that there's an inevitable inevitability to the presence of Napoleon occurring in the perspectival grid. Like, it really is like, it was inevitable that Mao Zedong would emerge and be in this painting with the perspectival grid. But Manet, in his thinking, what, do I really want to celebrate this? Or uh, do I really have a political opinion about this? And uh, can I really be sure that a painting can do that? And what he does is he actually creates a sandwich between the backs of the soldiers and the wall with the Goya-esque figures, implying that Goya would have viewed the execution from one way. We're viewing it from this way mm-hmm. in an almost an inscrutable way. Mm-hmm. And if you turn the whole painting this way, you see the execution happening in the sandwich. So it's like space actually is not a continuity. And time is not an, a continuity. It's acted upon by political forces that actually bend space and bend time. So, For sure. And so what he painted was the... the uh, um, the failure of perspective to actually indicate an inevitable, an historical inevitability, right. like the sequential 
the sequential nature of perspective that moves from our position to this point in infinity and back, you know, suddenly gets derailed by Manet. And that's why you see these flattenings in his pictures and all sorts of things like that, because he creates then an idea of pictorial space that is not driven by the illusion of, of perspective. And that's sort of the beginning of... Uh, and I would say that Duchamp's large glass is also a reference to Manet's uh, idea of spatialization in the creation of things. Because what Manet... What the, uh, <clears throat> Duchamp's large, Duchamp is obsessed with perspective in his early work. There's a piece in the Museum of Modern Art that's a small glass, and it has an ob obelisk in it and a lens, and the instructions are that you're supposed to stare through the lens at this uh -huh. thing. And there are little doodads, like mechanical doodads floating around the thing. Well, the one in Philadelphia, too, where it's the woman... Well, see that now. Let's get to that in a minute. Okay. So, look at the imagine the uh, the etching by uh, Durer of perspective. Sure. It's a man sitting there with his eye on an obelisk, looking through a perspectival grid, and he's looking at a woman foreshortened, essentially looking up her dress in a way. Mm -hmm. You could say, looking up her dress. She's foreshortened, right? And he's there with this phallic obelisk right here with his eye attached to it. In Duchamp's piece, there's an obelisk right underneath the little lens, uh -huh. right? Okay, then you remember Duchamp did the last piece that you're referring to, which you peek through, and what you're looking at is a woman with her legs spread out uh -huh. like that. Then you put that together with Courbet's Origin of the World, sure, and you've got this triumvirate of ideas of perspective, uh -huh. right? Now, Manet, doing what he did to perspective, right, would have been, it would have been recognizable to artists. So when Duchamp makes the large glass, which is essentially what? A window, like an Albertian window that you can see from this side and you can go around to the other side and see it from this side. Mm -hmm. But what you see in Duchamp's is an inscrutable, uh, an unknowable uh, dramatic narrative within it that bears, I think, some kind of strange resemblance to the, to the soldiers and the principal figure of the bride. The bride stripped bare by her bachelors, even. Another and who, Duchamp, right? And who, that was wonderful. That's probably my favorite Duchamp. I love that painting. I love that piece. So, so by the way, it sounds like you might actually be a Renaissance man after all, because it's uh, <laughs> so, 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 so the way you're talking about painting new Like, you might have doubts about what to paint next or how to paint what you paint, but you actually have no doubt that painting is worth it, I think. Like, like the way you were just talking about that, like, I won't let anything stop me. Like, like, uh, um, like, 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 you know that that's the way, you know, like, that's your, that's your way, that's your thing, that's, that's the way that you want to spend the rest of your life. Yeah, it makes my brain work. Um, and, you know, it's, um, I, I, I mean, I feel like, I, honestly, I find that incredibly inspiring, that, like, oh, well, you never you. doubt, like, you might doubt about what to do in your studio, but you, it doesn't sound like you ever have doubts that you should be there. Yeah. Right, that's probably true. But I was, I was reading this, uh that David Lynch book about he was talking about how you do all these things he meditates you know he's really into that to keep yourself kind of mentally fit to in order to make work um, and you know kind of reminded me when he directed Dune and that phrase and that fear is the mind killer like you, so you can you can 
log hours in a thing or you can log mentally fit hours in a thing and they're much more powerful. Do you have any strategies to... I do. I Actually, my brain is like a really schizophrenic. It's divided into two parts. Uh, one is the theoretical part that is constantly fascinated by all of the intricacies of, of, of theory and of... Uh, and inventing uh, constructions that describe what seems to be happening. Because you know, I studied art history for at Bryn Mawr. Okay. And then the other side of my brain is the painting side. And when I paint, I can't speak. And mm. when, I, when I'm speaking, I can't paint. So in other words, when I'm thinking in terms of speech and putting together some kind of theoretical model, uh, you know, uh, and I don't allow that theoretical model to actually be invested in any way in the work of art that I'm doing, in, this, in the painting. So you're totally visceral so, painting. A total visceral, but here's how it works to me, is that the information that I, that I, that I f fill my brain with, you know, and this, this sort of strange cognition regarding theoretical things, uh, I, it seems like I put them in a pressure cooker, you know, and that pressure cooker reaches a kind of th threshold of, of intensity where there's an effervescence that comes out of a little steam hole. Uh -huh. And sure. that effervescence is my painting. Okay. But it doesn't, it really is, a, it's transformed into a different substance, but it has nothing to do with literally discursive uh, depiction of my theoretical thinking. Do, is the pressure cooker also outside forces like you've? You filled your house with kids, and I'm sure that adds stress. <laughs> <laughs> that's the pressure cooker. No, it's true. That, that's actually quite true. In fact, when I, even when I had cancer, I felt like I could really concentrate uh, because I, didn't, I wasn't suffering, uh -huh. uh, so I didn't have to worry about that, and I could just focus you know, very clearly on what I had to do, and that's how I finished the painting. Yeah. The kids too. It's to say you have to find the time to do the work, and when you, and when you're not with the kids, you know, you've got to do that work. Did you guys so interesting. Um, I, I can't remember Marshall for the conversation uh, you and I were having, but um, uh, um, if we had no, I mean, eventually we're we're all gonna die, um, the, which I'm personally terrified of. But I, I was. Um, um, at some point, I, we're I all terrified. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel yeah, I'm not terrified. At some point, where you I, are. Uh, okay, I just don't want to miss. I don't want to miss everybody. That's uh, all. But I'm not afraid of dying. Uh, but I, I feel like oh, what we're talking so about is like you know, like so. There's a part of me that wants to live forever, and I think were you the one that was saying that if you live forever, you get nothing done because um, you're like if you knew that you were going to live forever. Because <coughs> no, the reason I that you know, like what drives us to work, what drives us to do things, is actually the fear that one day we're not going to have the time to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Death right. always reminds us that hey. Better, better get it done now. Because well, and, and Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. <laughs> there you go. No, it's true. And, you know, it's like we have one chance. We're given one chance, yep. one life, to do what we want to do as painters. So why would we waste time doing something that we don't want to do? Why don't we just go right to the thing that we want to do yeah. and get it done? But there's so many real-world concerns that come in, like, you know, finances. you got to be vicious, man. You have to be vicious, and you work as a waiter. Um, I, I, that's how I got through school, is I worked as a waiter, you know, and luckily, you know, I was able to get some grants and, you know, a PS1 and all that, but the... Uh, so how, how long did you keep kind of, you know, being a waiter or kind of working these odd jobs until you started being... The art grind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're definitely like a modern day stoic. I feel like I've been reading a lot of these 
things lately, and uh, you definitely fit the profile. He has too much passion, I think. No, but that's the thing. Like, I, I think there's this misunderstanding that Stoics don't are not passionate. It's just a matter of like you can have the passion. Show, well, you're not supposed to show it if you are. It's, it's, not, it's not that. It's it's, it's not passion, that. but it's also yeah, right. it's also it's passion. It's compuls- compulsive behavior, and it's um, having a screw loose. And that screw loose, the screw loose, the screw loose, and the screw loose is the screw that makes you worry about finances and about where the next meal is coming from, <laughs> all that stuff. You just sort of let it go. <laughs> uh, so Sam's in the hospital, you know, and he's uh, you know, he's in the hospital. But I got to get that painting done, <laughs> and I would go to my studio and work on the painting. Uh huh. Work on the painting, and then you know, I for sure have that compulsion, but in the back of my mind, it's just terror the whole time, like. How 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 is this? You know, you sell a few paintings and you're feeling pretty good, and then it's like, how is this going to work? This is a crazy life. That's what you do. That's what I just did. <laughs> I sold a few paintings, and I have a, I, I'm okay for now. Uh-huh. But as soon as that runs out, I have to try to sell another painting. I don't uh-huh. really. Marvel hasn't hasn't sold a lot of my work uh-huh. recently. Now, recently, actually, now they're starting to pick up a little bit. Uh-huh. But uh, so, uh, so, so what do you do if a gallery? You know, like if a gallery doesn't sell. Like, 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 what, what, what do you do if there's that one year where, like, no one wants a painting in the Vincent Desiderio show? Or the many happen? years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I sort of came out of the, out of the, you know, gate. Uh, I, I just was so lucky because uh, the, my first show got a big review in the Times, and then the show sold out. Peter Ludwig came from Germany, bought all the stuff from the museum, and so immediately there was a success. And then there was a waiting list for paintings. But that dwindled. That went away. And I moved mm-hmm. from downtown to Marlborough, and uh, they didn't, it wasn't the same thing. They, people weren't buying new work at a lower price. The prices kept going up, and they reached a certain threat, you know, a certain point when they're expensive paintings now, and uh-huh. people don't want to spend that money if they don't know that that painting is going to be, um, they'll be able to turn it over in a couple of days. To and make a I've double. Heard that's the hardest pocket. That. Yeah, that is the pocket I'm in. Uh huh. But you know what? Mar- uh, you know, Marlborough is pretty. You know, it's a very interesting place. It, it's not always the gallery I wanted to show in to begin with, but I was encouraged to show there. And Pierre has been very supportive um, mm. of me. Uh, so I really, I have a good relationship with uh, with them. And but when you're in a gallery like Marlboro, it's hard to go to another gallery yeah. unless you go to Pace or Gagosian well, or something. Yeah, because there's maybe like six galleries that you know, like like would be even more. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's like you know, you go from being you know uh, a member of Congress to being a member of the PTA. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you feel like in the in the larger context? I mean, we've talked like. Jerry Saltz and these critics and how things are viewed. How do you feel your work is currently viewed? Do you agree with it? Do you feel like it's yours to agree with or not agree with? Oh, uh, you mean what people write about my work? What people write, what they say. How do you feel? I'm always shocked at how people interpret my work, and I think it's fun to a level, but it's it's rarely my full intention. There, there. I'll tell you, every now and then, 
someone writes poetically about the work or psychoanalytically about the work in some in some way that is absolutely resonant on a, in a surprising way with me. For example, I know that um, uh, the Blue Review did a, a review of my last show, and it was very beautifully written. Hmm. Uh, I told the, 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 the woman who wrote it not to really ask me about what the paintings are, but to go there and to actually write what she feels about the show. It was a really, really good review. Who who wrote that? Lauren. Lauren. It was beautiful. It was really, I was very pleased with it. And the other person, Donald Cuspert wrote a review. He's great. uh, Yeah, he wrote a review and he described one of my paintings and he described something that I didn't even um, know that I was doing in the painting, but I knew once he said it that it was absolutely the hidden. um, Really? Yeah. Peter Drake on this podcast had this similar experience with a writer, someone he was like, I never knew I was doing that. I know. It's and, and when you when you get someone like that, you know, someone of the erudition of Donald, you know, uh also a guy uh wrote a review uh in the Brooklyn uh in uh Brooklyn Rail. Uh-huh. I think it's all of, the, of that show, which was a good a good review of, of your current show? Of the current of the current show, yeah. Okay. It was it was I thought it was a very good review. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, uh, this guy Jed Pearl. You know Jed Pearl? I don't know. Uh, he wrote for that, what was that magazine that uh, Hilton Kramer was affiliated with? A very conservative, uh, not the New Criterion, what is it, New Criterion? Or, I can't remember what, which what it is. But anyway, he um, hated my work huh. and wrote a review. And you don't remember the good reviews, you always remember the bad reviews. <laughs> so his review ended... Uh, the, talking about me back in the 80s, the darling of the postmodern crowd, and then he ended the review he was with uh, uh, something like, uh, uh, let me say, it, it was really bad. It was like, he's a sloppy, uh, he's the worst, a sloppy moralist, that's what he wrote. And then years later, I was at a dinner for the Vermont Studio Center, and Jed Pearl was going to be at the dinner too. And the guy, John, uh, uh, who runs the place, sat me next to him. Oh, really? Oh, just, just to see what would happen to you, Nevin. <laughs> what a nightmare! Um, so these people, like they write about you. I mean, you don't come out of the head of Zeus fully formed, you know. So if you're like, you, you get all this attention on your first your first show, and then you got to figure, oh my God, I, I have so much growing to do, you know. I don't, and you don't want to fake it and create some kind of slick product, right, you know. Uh-huh. You want to really, you know, you, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your whole life as a little child painting the ceiling of my garage, you know, I don't want to just come up with some snappy branded image and reproduce it for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. I want painting to be something else, something that is engaged in my growth, uh, you know, so engages with my growth, my personal uh-huh. growth and personal enlightenment. And so if the paintings are horrible, but they're, they're selling and, you know, uh, people are writing about them, you know... I, they are hor- They were horrible. Some of those paintings I did. They, they were. I would do these like ten foot tall triptychs. You know that I would do one a month, one panel a month, and I didn't. In the beginning, I really didn't care at all about the technical aspects of them. 
I cared to get the narrative, the dramatic narrative, out there as fast as possible. So it was the eighty. It was eighties. It was a different time completely. Mm-hmm. Was, nobody was really doing. They were, they were called postmodern history paintings, you know. And um, at a certain point, I'd look at these things and think, I don't like the way these look. Mm. There's got to be something more to this than mm. that. And so then I really buckled down and tried to learn how to paint in a way that was satisfying to me. Not learn how to paint because, you know, what does that mean? In a way that was satisfying to me, that actually touched upon the, the kind of effects that I wanted to, uh, to be uh, uh, scintillating and kind of... Uh, uh, like galvanize a certain kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. What, what happened at this dinner with uh, Jet Pearl? Uh, oh, yeah. Please tell me he's fat oh. in his drink. Well, you might have to cut this out, but I was saying that him and his wife was... Uh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> it didn't go well. Let's put it that way. Misha could edit anything out. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Uh, okay, can you just tell us? Can you tell us? And he can promise to He just was rolling his eyes the whole time. Uh-huh. I, I mean, and I was trying to be nice. I actually I said mean, to him... People can get punched in the face for stuff like that. Well, I, I said to him, you know, you wrote a review of my show. I Right off the bat. I said, you wrote a review of a show a long time ago. And I just wanted to tell you that I think you were right. That the work was sloppy. And oh, it was really? overtly moralizing. And I just wanted to say that. And he didn't buy it. And his wife was like so psychotic or something. She, she was so angry angry, angry person. So she just was impossible to be with. They got up and left before dinner was served. I was so glad. Oh, I was so glad. But the backstory of that is it was the the work that you were not happy with. And yeah. It, and it I agreed with them. I said the review, success. I was trying to be Genteel. I mean, I could have come and said, you wrote a lousy review of my work, you yeah, scumbag. You know? yeah. I didn't want to say that, even though I thought it. I didn't want to say it. So I tried to take the higher road. Thank you for saying something, because I feel like I would have been there at that dinner the whole time being, you know, like making polite conversation about someone's, I don't know, begonias, or, you know, like that, and being like, oh, jackass, I, you know, like, remember all that stuff you wrote? So you know the thing is, so um, they interviewed a bunch of people who um, were bullied in, you know, in, in, in middle school, and they remember every single incident. And bullies tend not to remember it at all. Because, um, I, uh, like, what sticks with us is actually kind of, the, 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 you know, unfortunately, it's the bad things. It's, the, you know, and, and a lot mm-hmm. of that, you know, like, we remember that. And I think it's because, I mean, there's some scientific reason for it. Like, our body produces so much either adrenaline or cortisol or whatever that those things kind of etch ourselves into our memory. Whereas the person who's doing the bullying or writing the, you know, crap review, um, their adrenaline is not, you know, doing anything. Their cortisol level levels are steady. So, you know, he might have barely remembered. Oh, and yeah. I, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he didn't really care at all. He knew who I was at that point because by the time I had dinner with him, I had already achieved a certain well, level of notoriety. <laughs> But in spite of his lousy review. Um, being, being called a postmodernist darling uh, sounds actually kind of nice. I mean, like, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to be called that. <laughs> that was kind of cool. I like that part. <laughs> but he was, he was saying it very sarcastically. So uh, you've spoken... Like the guy was just a jackass. <laughs> you've said so many, like, inspiring things, and clearly your work is so inspiring. And I, I got, like, this real, you know, great feeling talking yeah, to you, literally. You yeah. <laughs> But I, I, I want to ask a question about what are the consequences of following your dreams? Because you've really had this compulsion, and you you know how to organize it. And, and, and you, you lived it. Like, and you've you lived it. And, uh, 
Oh, boy. You know, how difficult is that to answer? I mean, uh, <laughs> living is, here... Is, 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 there, is there a price? Maybe there isn't. Maybe there is always a price. There's a line from The Price by Arthur Miller. <laughs> the price people pay. <laughs> there's always a price. I mean, you know... But I, it's understood there's a price for not following your dreams as well. You know, what's the I price know, for? We know, we know that. We know that. We, we want to, like, yeah. Like, like, like everyone talks about the price for of not following your dreams, but how about if you do it, you know, like, like you, you, you truly did it. Like, like you made the kind oh, of pain. You're an inspiration to all of us. I, oh, God. I don't think of myself yeah, I, I think way. he's blushing. He is. I don't think of my, myself that way, and I... I, I struggle so much still and there's um, you know um, I mean you become obsessive and all I really want to do is talk about art and think about art and, talk, uh-huh. and so I have to really work hard to now I've got to spend some time with my wife now I've got to spend some time with my kids you know uh-huh. you show them upstairs dad you painted yesterday <laughs> and you start to like feel like everyone's saying oh you're so privileged you get to paint all day and this sort of thing and I, I say I betrayed in a second, if I could just punch a clock and, and come home and be done with my work. But painting is just, it's all consuming, and it's just I dream it at night. I, Do you feel I it's never, like an albatross in a way? Like a. Um, I, that's interesting. I, an albatross? Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's an albatross. Uh, I would say it's a. I mean, Duchamp called it an addiction painting. Uh-huh. I wouldn't be so glib uh, as to call it just that. But it's, my uncle said to me when I was very little, um, he said, you're an artist, you're going to be an artist, it's clear. He said, but I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be easy and you're going to always feel for the rest of your life beholden to your talent. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I, and I uh, he said that when I was like, I was 14 or 13 or something. Wow. And uh, it really stuck with me. And uh-huh. It really is, it's like I am nothing without that. Uh, painting is like breathing. If I can't paint, if I don't paint for a while, I get really out of sorts. If I'm left to my own devices, I don't know what to do. Huh. I never really learned how to take care of myself that well. Huh. You know, if I, uh, lots of things, you know, I I can be easily addicted to, you know, alcohol or, or not drugs, but, you know, cigarettes or anything like that. Um, I, I just, I fall apart. Huh. And when it's going well in the studio, I feel like my brain is like sees you know forever. You know, it's like that's why I think of painting. I tell students sometimes that you know, every time you commit to uh, a canvas, you have a canvas. You make the first mark on it, the second mark, the third mark, and it's messed up. The fourth mark ah, corrects it. In the fifth one, you keep building this thing. What you're doing is building really a commitment, and you're building a, a, a structure around yourself. And I say you can either develop a technical approach or an approach to your technical narrative, narrative that uh, creates a prison for you, mm-hmm. or you can create an observatory around. You're going to build some structure one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I'd rather it be an observatory mm. from which I can see what possibilities there are rather than sort of, you know, bring it to a kind of, you know, premature closure 
It's like in painting, painting, people say, what's the difference between painting, um, you know, representational painting and illustration? And I say that, you know, an illustrator and a painter, a representational painter, might start with a similar premise. And they say, well, we're going to move this, this work to its conclusion, to its terminus. The illustrator will do everything that he or she can to arrive fairly neatly at the terminus because that's their job, right? Mm -hmm. The painter, along the way, realizes that they, they need to keep the ball in motion. So they start to splay the vectors away from the, the connecting at the nexus. And so they wind up passing each other like ships in the night. You know, and if you turn the diagram this way, you see that the the, the technical narrative gets amplified and replenished and uh, reconstructed all through the course of the picture. And in the end, you have something that's not uh, brought to premature closure, something that's in motion constantly. And I think that painting is in motion constantly. And huh. one of the reasons it's in motion constantly is it totally is heavily is heavily, I think, in, uh, dependent upon a kind of uh, paradigmic uh, manner of thinking where everything you do is uh, so has, has its associations that are not clear-cut. It's a, a slippery, uh, uh, a slippery um, uh, accumulation of, uh, of uh, information, of, of, uh, of signifiers, or I wouldn't call them signifiers because that gives too much credence to that, that way of thinking. But the, the, all of the things that make the painting have ramifications and different associations all the time. And all of that is built into the technical narrative. Uh, you build that... Uh, uh, that uh, enigmatic, sort of slippery, multivalent quality in every stroke you put on the canvas, hmm. right? Would um, you say that's a risk, like embracing risk? Uh, it, it, it is a risk, but it becomes a sort of uh, modus operandi for the painter. Hmm. The painter who doesn't want to, you know, Frangelico ends up with, uh, Frangelico ends up with these, uh, you know, pictures, devotional pictures, you know, and things like that, but there's something else going on in Frangelica that you can't really say, oh, it was just made for, for people who didn't read the Bible. To understand these Bible stories, like everybody wants to say, everybody's painted these pictures to teach people, you know, about Bible stories when they weren't allowed to read the Bible because they were Catholics, you know, mm -hmm. and it's right. not all that. It's like, can you imagine if you if you're living in the Renaissance and you say, I, I'm a painter, and painters are really intellectuals, and they're, they're poets and intellectuals, and they, uh, you're required to paint a crucifixion, a deposition, a pieta, a nativity scene, this saint, that saint, that saint, that saint. Do you think for a minute that a painter like Pontormo or Michelangelo, you know, or any of these guys actually were invested in creating, some, creating something that would communicate the precise nature of the, the, uh, the subject? Well, or yeah. did they take their intelligence and bury it into the technical narrative? And there is encoded the real thinking of a painter. When we look at Vermeer, we don't like wonder about the letter you could write it. I can, you know, I can write something about the letter that the women are receiving in a kind of art historical. Any any Vermeer painting where someone's got a letter, okay. reading a letter, being given a letter. You don't really care what the letter says, um, right? I'm not even sure you care. I mean, Vermeer, cared, like he cared so much about the paint and the composition.
position. Like, I like it's not that he didn't care about the letter. I'm not even sure he cared about the person. Like, like, right. like but he uh-huh. did care about painting. Well, here's an interesting thing about Vermeer is that oh, I can't go on about that. But Vermeer, you know, there's a conversation going on between Vermeer and the people on the other side of the wall. Uh, the, of the camera obscura, uh-huh, you know, sure. and it has to do with the artist's relationship to Venus, you know. If you look at the uh, and Narcissus, you know, if you look uh-huh. at uh, paintings of Venus at her toilet, you know, there's a mirror, and you know, people could make the claim, oh, these men are just painting naked women. It's an opportunity to paint a naked woman. But in the paintings of Venus, the mirror is bent like this, is turned, so that when you see the painting, you're seeing Venus's face in the mirror. Uh-huh. Okay, if she were looking at her face, you wouldn't see it. But if you can see her face, then she can see your face. Uh-huh. She's tipped the mirror to see your face. So there's, there's this triangulation between the artist, the mirror, and the uh, and the source of beauty, love, and truth, which would be Venus. That and the mediating factor is the mirror, which is the canvas in a sense. So really, what it is is a kind of triangulation that happens. And for mirror, you have. Venus figures throughout his paintings. His, and he did love them because they were his family members, his daughters and his wife. And, you know, when he painted them, he painted them as if they were Venus. They're, they have pearls. That's, and that, uh, that's one of the, uh, the, the uh, you know, accoutrements of Venus, you know. Mm-hmm. There are mirrors that they're looking in. There are puppies even that he painted out of paintings, you mm-hmm. know, that are also part of Venus. So there, it's always this Venus this Venus sort of, you know, observe communication with Venus, which can't actually be done visually right in front of Venus anymore. It has to be done through some mediating factor. And the mediating factor is, in fact, it's the letter that gets passed from this side of the wall of the camera obscura to Venus reading the letter, you uh, know, on that side. So, so speaking of painting naked women, I think, Marshall, you were telling me that a conversation that you kind of, you know, that is happening at the Academy right now is whether men are even allowed to so, so, you know, to, to paint me, you know, so, so I, I think that... The Whether level a man, of, not... Yeah, not I, I mean, for, for the, so I personally think the level of kind of political correctness that we've kind of hit in some way is, is completely uh, ludicrous, but, uh, like, just, expo- like, like, how do you feel about this? Oh, um... Like, like, like why is this conversation even happening? You know, I think that it's a matter of personal choice. A painting is not really a painting of a person. Uh, even a portrait of someone is not really a painting of that person. It's a self-portrait. Paintings are always pictures of the artist, no matter what they're painting. Uh-huh. And so every, you can read the painting and you see everything about the artist. Sometimes it's really embarrassing what you see. And like in some paintings where, uh, like these these uh, atelier paintings of like women, naked women on the bed with a gossamer sort of cloth and the light caressing the body, all this stuff, it's, you know... I don't care how stunning the skill level is, you know, it's just the same thing. It is an objectification. And it doesn't make the woman the object. It, uh, it makes the artist embarrassingly the object. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I guess, sure. like, why, why is object, objectification necessarily a bad thing? Like, we, we throw that word around like it's, you know, that, um, 
um, like like I, I think Vermeer in a way maybe did objectify the woman and they're you know be, he, like he, he like you're right they are his family members and they're a symbol of something and they're you know like it's him as seen through you know like 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 you're right in a way they're self-portraits is how he sees them and kind of like what they mean to him and I guess what's what's wrong with that <laughs> like the, there's nothing wrong with yeah, that yeah yeah, yeah 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 I guess like it's, it's just like objectification that becomes this kind of uh, no but you know <laughs> you've seen these paintings that sell off the easel immediately by collectors who go, ah, I like that babe on the bed. Give me another one of those babes on the bed. You know, I mean, it's, come on. It's, a, it, it, it's an embarrassment to the artists who paint those things. They, they, yes, they can say all the, I love women. I love their sensuality. But you know what? There are women who don't look like that, who are sensual, who are intelligent, or breathtakingly captivating. And, you know, I don't want to paint them because that's not really what I... But even I think you're painting your inner life. I, you know, uh, why do I want to see a Dina Brodsky or Vincent Desiderio, or why do I feel like I should be painting? It's so you're throwing all of yourself on a canvas and just painting someone academically on a bed, a hot girl, is not yourself. That's that doesn't. It's not myself, but it is the self of the person who does it, and embarrassingly so. Well, sh a shallow self. It, it's a sh the shallow self. I think painting is far more complicated so than I that. A, Absolutely. I had a professor that became an artist. You know, so when he was sixteen, I think he ran away from home and joined. He was Scottish. He joined the Scottish. Um, what, are, what, what is their version of Marines? Um, oh, the bagpipe guys. <laughs> I mean, not, not the bagpipe oh, no. guys, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> is it like, like the Scottish National Guard or something? But you know, right. he went out to sea and he's kind of this, you know, short, dorky kid. And um, <laughs> he, he got, you know, constantly harassed um, until his, um, his bunk mates realized that he could draw naked women with really, really large breasts. And then they stopped harassing him, but for the rest I've heard of that story many he, times. He, he, basically, for the, for the rest of the year, that was what he did on that ship. He drew a naked woman with extremely large breasts, and once he, you know, they, they went ashore somewhere, and um, he was like, I think this is what I want to do. I want to be an artist, you know? So his paintings, by the way, have no naked woman with, with breasts in them at all. Right. But that was how you say, you know, I guess over a year of doing it, he got really good at it. <laughs> and he got good at drawing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a funny, that's a kind of funny story, I mean, I think that that's 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 you, different than someone always, who, Yeah, do you think he was always secretly drawing, and you know that's just what kind of his cover story? Uh, uh, no, but I think that, I mean I think he, yeah I think it's more of a cover story, but I think it probably there was some truth to it. I, you know I, I don't know I mean painting is is such an amazing amazing thing. I don't I don't really believe that uh, naked women. People always talk about naked women in paintings being uh, always objectified, and I don't think that they are. There's so many naked men in, in, in works. You know, Michelangelo is objectifying these naked men. I mean, he's painting what he loves, you know, these, these naked men, you know, uh -huh. with flopping penises, because they turn. And he's the only guy who painted the flopping penis, you know. <laughs> the, the, the ignudio and the stuff, turning suddenly, and the penis is flopping. <laughs> you know what I'm Like, I, I feel like I might never catch you like in, oh, in no. a closed space again. Please, I, I love um, this. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can just come over and, and do this, but um, with, without us recording. Um, but um, like, if you could, you know, kind of like if you had a time machine and you could rewind to several places in your life and just t talk to the person you were then, um, what would you say to wow. the, you know, is, is this a person that was having kind of the 
um, the deep dark night, you know, night of the soul uh, back in your early 20s, what would you tell that person? Well, and my other question is, what would you tell yourself right after you had your first six super successful solo show that was on the cover, you know, cover of the Times? So. Well, we were screaming when we got the Times, and you know, we opened it up, and there it was, and Gail and I were like screaming, and Sam was a babyist before he got sick, and he started screaming, crying, screaming, he got afraid because we were like screaming about this. I guess what, 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 yeah, like what would you tell yourself, like if you, you know, so you, you as you are right now, you get your time machine. You go back to that moment in life. What would you tell that person? At that time, at that moment? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I it was. I didn't know very much. I. I it was just like. But you do. But you know a lot now. Like what I know and if now. You, like if you had, you know, it, like basically the knowledge that you have now. Oh, uh, I would say. Could... I would say. I would say what I actually thought at the time is that it's not always going to be up, 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 up. It'll. It'll be down, down. Because I mean example of Rembrandt or any of these artists who, Daumier, who was totally impoverished in Van Gogh, and, you know, so like, Rembrandt was phenomenal success as a portrait painter, and then he stopped selling paintings, you know, so I knew that that, that was always, that's always there, you know, it's always going to go up and down, and you have to develop a strong inner core that is more uh, resilient and doesn't necessarily depend on verification from the outside, although you realize that it's really fun when it happens that way. You also realize that they don't really understand what I'm doing or where I'm going, because I don't quite understand yet where I'm going. Hmm. What would you hmm. tell the version of yourself that, you know, at 20-something is kind of just totally lost and trying to figure out what you're doing, and you just came back from Europe? Uh, um... I don't think I would tell him anything because I think that I think that people should be left alone to you know kind of find, I think find that if I told path. if I told myself anything that I know now then I would have derailed myself from becoming what I am now. Stanislav huh. has a has a story about that. It's like there's there's right there are stories about people who try to go home back and try to change the future by going into the past, you know? And yeah. Something always goes wrong and they can't do it. They can't bring the documents back or, uh -huh. you know. So wait, you would talk yourself out of it in that, what do you mean, like responsibility? What, what would be the, the impetus for talking yourself out of the path that you've chosen? Oh, I wouldn't have talked myself out of the path necessarily, but if I had said to myself, it's going to be all right, uh, you know, just keep working uh, the important thing is that you keep working, and that's essentially what I did, but it, I, I did it um, in a kind of cauldron of self-doubt, uh, and I did it uh -huh. in this fire of desire to uh, achieve a certain, not fame, achieve a certain level of accomplishment personally with the work, and if I said, eh, it'll be all right, don't worry, I wouldn't have been thirsty, I wouldn't have been hungry enough. You would have been hungry. I would have, it would have like sort of said, okay, I'll, Maybe I'll, you wouldn't have been scared enough. I, I, wouldn't, I would have alleviated the terror that has been so much a part of my development. And success has so many different definitions, you know, like being written in the Times or the show or having a or breakthrough doing, in the studio. Or just doing the work that you or just, want to do. What do you consider success and do you feel successful? Oh. Sometimes I feel like I know that I'm... I'm, I'm I hear a concert pianist playing, and I say, God, I, that's, or my daughter playing, you know, I think, God, she's so good. Or I hear a, a virtuoso playing the piano, or the violin, 
And nowadays, instead of saying, uh, feeling kind of impotent in the face of that uh, kind of virtuosity, I, I kind of can say to myself sometimes, I also can be virtuosic. You know, I've worked really long and hard at this, and I've, mm. and so I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I know what I'm doing. I know mm -hmm. what I'm, I know about painting. I know a great deal about it, you know. And I am also very. I, I, I have technical aspirations that are that I'm, I'm, I'm at times realizing, and I think that those, you know, it's just uh, those kind of things make me feel, make me feel okay. Um, I guess for kind of everyone, I feel like a lot of the people who listen to this are, well, I mean, a lot of them look up to your work, but a lot of them are actually, you know, like like kind of just starting out trying to figure out what they're doing as artists. Mm. Would you have any advice for them, or do you, is your advice to kind of, you know, make your own mistakes and find your own, you know? No, I would say bite off more than you can chew. Bite wow. off more than you can chew and enough and that you can... figure out how to swallow it. No, you're right, and spend your life chewing it. <laughs> and, and not like you know, just joke. not little bits and little successes, but you know, go for the most uh, complicated thing and the most exalted aspect of of painting that you possibly can, and know that you're going to fail, and that failure <clears throat> is essential to learning. Is, and if you don't fail, you won't learn. Is that and, that pressure cooker you're talking? Are you? No, that's something different. That's something. That's something different. That's something that I've. Nowadays, I am, but I know that I fucked up. Excuse me, <laughs> so many paintings, you know. In fact, I did. Um, I spent months and months on a triptych when I was at Marlboro uh, years ago. <coughs> I got more and more and more depressed, and the painting was getting worse and worse. But I wouldn't leave it alone. I had to finish it. <coughs> excuse me. Um, and I finally brought the painting to the gallery, and Pierre saw immediately that it was really overworked, and, and he said, you know, this is not good, this is going to hurt your reputation. And I said, okay, just send the painting back to me, uh, maybe I'll rework it. Uh, but in the meantime, I began another painting, it's called uh, Elegy, it's a Sam in bed, naked, with his legs spread open, and he's this old man sleeping next to him is his grandfather. I know that painting. Seen from above. Seen from above, yeah. And I had a real breakthrough with that chromatically, like I'd never in my life. Because usually I was, well, I wanted, by accident, I did a painting, I was working on a painting, and it, it just didn't have any of the mystery, mystery that I wanted it to have. It's in the, the Met owns the painting now. It's called The Sleeping Family. And at one point, I just pulled a a dark glaze of bitumen, Lake Vibert by uh, uh, the Frank Bourgeois, over the whole picture with liquid. And I looked at it and I went, wow, that's kind of cool. And now it has a little bit of mystery, but it's flattened and everything is the same muddy color. You know, now let me let me just work on it again. So I, I took light on my brush, a warm light actually, and um, I dabbed it on the picture and I saw a couple of things that really blew me away. One thing was that even though I had charged this white, this titanium with uh, uh, ochre, so it had a warmth to it, it was very cold in comparison to the, the warmth of the glaze. Mm. And so I went, huh. And then I looked at it closely, and it seemed to be floating. The underpainting was there, the glaze was there, and this 
new layer that I was putting on opaquely was floating on mm. top of the glaze, and I could sort of see this thing floating on the surface. Then I started to hit it with my thumb like this, and when I did that, it turned blue, like an iridescent blue. And huh. that was, uh, I learned for the first time, because I never trained technically. I never trained in school. I was an abstract painter. I was teaching myself. I saw for the first time what a scumble was. And that a scumble is fundamentally cool compared to a glaze, which is almost always warm in comparison. Mm, so, uh -huh, okay. I, so I, I then developed this network of that. And I, for a while then, I said, ah, oh, this is a secret that I can, this is a, a way of painting that I feel good about. And I did a number of paintings like that in a way, including a big triptych called uh, The Progress of Self-Love with all these soldiers in the center panel, and this thing, giant painting. It's in Wait, Guggen just, Guggenheim, actually, owns it. Just to be sure, you're calling a scumble like an opaque... And then the glaze will be a transparent yeah, You know that Titian, Titian said famously, I paint with, uh, he said, Velletura, 30 or 40 glazes, right? So if you think about that, you can't keep glazing something 30 or 40 times, it'll turn black. But in Italian, there's no differentiation between the word glaze and scumble. So a velatura is a glaze and it's also a scumble. It's a, the, the word in Italian for glaze and scumble is the same word, velatura. In English, we have glaze and scumble. But in Titian, he, like, he wouldn't just be like glazing down 40 times, right? Like, he would, right, like, you have glaze to glaze down, and scumble, it, you know, glaze and scumble. You know, that's, that's exactly, you know, you've, yeah. done, you've done it. And, you know, when I did, and then, um, so I did that for a while, but then I got really depressed about this painting that I was doing. It seemed like everything I was doing was, was too... Um, um, Overly determined, you know. It was, everything was determinate. There was no indeterminacy and in, in life in the thing. It was just sort of the symbol, the the code that was basically a, a fixed symbol mm -hmm. that I was painting in a certain way. And I didn't like that. So I began this other painting, this one that I'm talking about, this elegy. And what I did was I I did a transparent drawing over the whole thing. And then, like ridiculously, I because I didn't know what I was doing, I took cobalt blue and, and titanium and put a scumble over the whole thing and all of a sudden it became this iridescent surface it didn't look good and I knew that I had to like start pulling things out of the scumbles to create volumes but when I p touched the paint onto it, even if I made it cool, the paint it looked warm in comparison to the scumble mm -hmm. and Max Jerner talks about that, he says that glaze is fundamentally warm in comparison to a scumble that is almost always cool because of the opacity in the scumble. It's, it's dark. When you paint light over dark, you get an iridescent gray that's called an optical gray. When you paint dark over light, with the light coming through, that's a glaze. So a glaze is darker over light where the light comes through, uh -huh, uh -huh. and a scumble is light over dark, over dark where the darkness yeah. comes through, causing an optical gray. Later on, talks sure. about that. When you, take, you can take a black canvas, and you could put... You know, very fine layers of white over it. Fine. After a while, you're going to get blue. And he equated it with the atmosphere. Because, you know, beyond the atmosphere during the day, the sky is black as, as night. Mm. You know, but because we have all this water vapor in our atmosphere, when the sun goes through it, it causes a blueness. Mm -hmm. So atmosphere, the blue sky we see is really a scumble over the darkness of, of the sky. I remember, like, the moment... I, so I discovered glazing on my own because I went to a school that was run by people who concentrated on, like 
really long brush strokes <laughs> <laughs> and whatnot. Uh, but I remember like it was about two in the morning. I remember the building I was in. I remember mixing up. It was liquid and must have been some sort of yellow and I had a painting that was way too white and I was like well what happens if I do this and I was like ah it's a magic trick I, I know how to paint like like it, it, it felt I mean it was before the Harry Potter books but like it felt like being at Hogwarts or something <laughs> like like that um like it was the closest I ever came to being like an alchemist I, I, I know um, and but as Max and then, Jernan by, by says the way, I, came, I came to the academy and all of the stuff I learned on my own painstakingly over five years of undergrad got covered in like three days probably <laughs> um, yeah but you you see you're different you, you at the academy you were already you know so adept and so fine with your work and I remember it very well going uh, to your studio and looking and we even talked about Joseph Brodsky the uh, poet and I wondered if you were related not, to him. I'm not related to. You're not related to. <laughs> we talked about Brodsky. Did, did I pretend to be related to him? Because no, you I didn't. Think I think you... I, I'm, I, know, I can't remember. Because actually, when I was talking to Roxanne, I said, you know, I, I think that she's related to Brodsky, the poet, uh, but, uh, who I met a long time ago <laughs> you, in Hamburg. You met Brodsky? Wow. Yeah. Because did you tell... Oh, okay, well, well, okay, so we're probably losing about half our audience, but uh, did you talk about that? Please? I don't know. It was not much. My brother was a Russian major, so I went to a Russian party and uh, visiting... Uh, visiting uh, artist was Brodsky actually, to the Russian Department of Bryn I went Bryn to the university I went to because I heard that Brodsky was teaching around there and, and you could kind of take a seminar with him and of course I, I got in and the year I got in so that you know that Brodsky died oh and, no um, and, uh, um, but I, I did I, I would every once in a while bump into people who remembered him um, and uh, apparently he was an enormous asshole so a lot of what he was liked for actually is that he would you know it was he would let you know he's he's a compulsive smoker, so he would uh, there'd be all these faculty meetings and enclosed rooms, and he would, you know, just chain smoke. Um, the, which and because he was Brodsky, no one could tell him to, you know, of stop chain smoking. So every every time Brodsky showed up, every other smoker in in the room who'd never have done it otherwise would also get their cigarettes out. And it's like being it's like being in dinner, at a dinner in a restaurant in China, um, and the president of the academy starts lighting up everybody starts smoking. Of course, you know the president's doing it. So um, I, I guess one more question, and, and then maybe, or maybe Marshall has one, but um, this is this one. Um, if you had a superpower, and you could just pick any superpower, uh, like like um, like speaking of Hogwarts, uh, um, you know, invisibility, flying, any of those, but what, what would it be? And maybe and maybe what, what would you And it wouldn't it? be invisibility so I can go into the ladies' room? Um, I mean, you, 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 oh, you can, cut that out! Uh, you, can, you can totally you can, so you can, you know, go you can rob banks with invisibility. You can do all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I mean, me and Marshall talked about this earlier. We would both pick invisibility, although I would pick uh, flying if it came along with invisibility, but not on its own. Yeah. You could teleport. If I had a superpower... It would be um, if I could figure out a way to explain to students in a way that I believed that um, what they're really studying when they're studying painting is not simply how to draw or mix colors, but to do something that is incredibly difficult, that they have to realize that there's a difference between skill and technique, which is what I tell the Chinese students, and try to elucidate that to them. And also to prove in no uncertain terms that there is encoded within the technical processes of painters throughout history uh, information that has not yet been written about. 
but that it forms the basis of how uh, we, uh, the things that we, we, we glean from a painter's work and then make into our own, uh, even if other people never see it. So I would like to be able to be an author and write as clearly as possible this idea of what technical narrativity is and what the allegorization of method is. Yeah, I feel like you're doing that. But I am Superman. There's kryptonite in this room. Have you ever read that book, uh, Mastery, by Robert Greene? No. That's actually really good. I just started. And it's just talking about how talent, you know, you have, there's no shortcut to mastering a certain thing at all. There's no. And And it's not skill level. No. Because there's so many skilled people. I think they were. Th- mm-hmm. He was talking about like Darwin and how his uh, brother was uh, a smarter person than he was, but Darwin had this like love for just looking at these objects and studying them. It was the love of it that drove him to become the man he is. While his brother, even though he was smarter, just didn't. He was kind of all over the place. So he kind of never achieved that mastery. It's the hedgehog and the, uh, what is it, the hedgehog and the fox? Is that one one does many things well, but then one does one thing well. (laughs) Or is it the scorpion and the frog? Yeah, it's some animal, some other unpleasant beastie. There's actually been a study a while ago about, you know, kind of, you know, people graduating from Harvard. And apparently, so most of them go on to do very, you know, very, very well in life. But actually, very few of them go on to kind of, you know, as a people that kind of truly break ground in any given discipline, all tend not to come from, you know, specifically from Harvard, because what Harvard right. values is, you know, um, is, is polymath the right word? Just people who are good at, you know, a lot of different things. Uh, like, the, it values well-rounded people, whereas the people that actually kind of, you know, break new ground tend not to be very well-rounded. Uh-huh. They're like the kid that's bad at sports. It's like jack and, of all and, trades. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and to something that, that Vincent has is, to that point, my brother, who's like an, sort of an economist, who says, it's not education, it's not um, money, it's not privilege that adds to success. He's saying like most people are finding out it's just grit like kids who have that, who are like, you, who's gonna do a thing just single-minded purpose and are gonna do it, your odds of success are higher than whatever money you could throw at a kid, you know. That's, that's right. Like, I heard the definition of a prodigy, an art prodigy, is not like, you, you can, we can really chart, you know, the progress or the, the uh, exceptional aspect of, of, of a musical prodigy or a mathematical prodigy, you know, but an artistic prodigy is something else because it's really not uh, phenomenal skill early on. It's that's right. It's absolute, like, unswerving desire to do this thing well that's like the Harold Speed book he would say that every child's first portrait across the board is symbolism like you were talking about semiotics it's a it's a circle with two dots for the eyes and a smiley face it's there's nothing optical about it so it's like when we're young we're in that symbolic brain and we draw mom and dad all fairly similarly and it's hard to see who's talented or not within that but it's like that. It's, it's kind of interesting. If you, if you take someone, an adult, 
and you ask them to read something and write something intelligent about it, they can they can do it. Or give them a simple mathematical equation, they can they can probably figure it out. They they've learned to read, they've learned to think, and then you ask them to draw a picture, and they draw it like they were drew it when they were six years old, uh-huh. and they always say the same thing: "Oh, I don't have any talent." Uh-huh. And they don't understand that it's not the skill. That's right. It's the drive. It's the drive. You know. teaching a bunch of different age levels, but my favorite by far was he's kind of like retired, um, you know, mostly with like, you know, like, like, like geriatrics. Retired, they weren't geriatrics, but, they, <laughs> they, uh, but I mean, there were these retired ladies out in Long Island, and they were my best students because so they had the drive and they had the time, uh, not all of them, but they improved, you know, and they didn't, I mean, whatever, like a few of the, the like, you know, some of the younger kids had just, just more technical ability to start off with or whatever, but actually they were all over the place, they weren't really concentrated on this, they weren't really art majors, where some of these women improved so much and they listened and they would go home and kind of do the stuff and, and it was totally amazing. The, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I told I told the geriatric center once, oh, and I loved those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were really cool. My, sister, like, my sister used to do that. She's actually really, really good with, uh, I don't know if you remember her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's actually her brother-in-law over there. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but well, yeah, she used, to, she used to work with old people, and she was amazing at it. Uh, well, Vincent, this has been amazing. Thank you so absolutely. much for coming by. Oh, thank yeah. you for having me. It was thank a real you pleasure. for, you know, humbling so us and uh, <laughs> with your drive. <laughs> <laughs> humbling and inspiring us with your drive. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have to drive home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, three hours of sleep before the kid wakes up and decides to, you know, talk all night or whatever. You just have to let him cry, Dean. I just... Aren't you listening? <laughs> <laughs> Don't shake the baby. <laughs> I used to, you know, I used to be okay letting him cry, but now I hear me, I'm like, well, I'm scared, I'm scared. I know, I can't, and I, I can't. can't, I can't. Like, you can't, I can't. just ends up sleeping in my bed. And you know what's really good? After you have a lot of kids, you, you know, you can read their cries. So you're on the street, you hear a kid crying, and you know the kid's tired, you know the kid's hungry. You know whether the kid is uh, frightened, uh, mm-hmm. but you can, or the kid is overstimulated. You can. Wow. There's a certain. There's certain cries that they have for different things. Yeah. You, uh, know, you, know, you, can, you know. So for a while, I would like let my kid cry for like some some amount of time before fit picking him up, just because like I don't want him sleeping in my bed every night. Maybe she can cut all of that. But like at some point, he said, you know, I cried last night and nobody came to pick me up, and I was like, and I'm like, and he's been in my bed ever since. So, some people, some people say that really that's sad. what you're supposed to do is let them cry until they go back to sleep. I could totally, I, totally, I used to do that. I, 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 I could do that, no problem, like a year There's ago, no but way. now I can't. Like, I, I, I couldn't do it. I, I, I didn't care. You know, I'd turn on TV and just sit and hold the baby in a bottle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when he was a baby, I had no problem letting him cry. Now that he's talking, I can't do it at all. Like, <laughs> oh, I know, because now he blames you, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Me it's all your fault. No, but I mean, he, he's not even saying you didn't pick me up, but he's like, I was crying and nobody picked me up and I was like well I feel awful now <laughs> <laughs> it's a guilt there you go yeah, they learn that really fast to guilt you thank you so much thank you so much like, we're, like, we have to take a photo yeah. thank you for listening to the Arc Rhyme podcast rate and review us on Apple Podcast also we're on Instagram at Arc Rhyme Podcast you can leave comments on the thread or dm us there we usually see them also 
Facebook. We're at Art Crime Podcast. You can uh, leave comments, future questions for our guest and such there. Also, we're on our website is www.artgrindpodcast.com. Yeah, and um, definitely go there for the beautiful images that we post um, of the artist and the copious notes that I create so that you can enjoy um, all the references that they mentioned during the interview. And don't be shy to donate us some money so we could buy some really good booze for the guests. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.